Hey everyone, welcome to Game Face episode 121 on Sifted Games at Sifted.net. And I have a very special guest with me today. I'm special, all right. Mr. Colin Moriarty. Thank you for having me. I put on pants today, I left my apartment. <laughs> and Colin, uh, here I am. Colin, you're not getting out much these days. No, I have no time. And also I live in Santa Monica and we were just talking about it took me, I'm, you're like seven miles from me. Or Is it even like seven miles? It's like maybe six and a half yeah. miles on a, on, by road from me. And it took me an hour and ten minutes to get here today. Uh, so, in an Uber. Yeah. yeah, in an Uber. So I was, it's, it's too much. Putting on pants is hard enough for me, but no. <laughs> You know, running CLS is, a, is a, obviously a full-time job, so I'm, I'm you know, I'm lucky to, to be here. I'm fortunate to be here. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, well, thanks for coming, man. I appreciate you fighting through the L.A. insanity to get here. You're very welcome. And apparently it just started pouring right when I... Yeah, uh, it waited at least for that, for you like to get op- here. It's like ominous, the whole it thing, never, isn't it? It never rains here, Jeez. like ever. Uh, Colin, if you guys are uh, regulars on our stream and maybe aren't familiar with Colin, Colin, want to give him a quick uh, bio of your, your past? Sure. Um, I'm Colin Moriarty. Is this my one? That's your one. I'm yep. co- I haven't been. This is the first time I've done a video <laughs> hit podcast since I left Kind of Funny. Uh, I, uh, I'm Colin Moriarty. I am 33 years old from Long Island, New York. Uh, I was senior editor of IGN for many years, and then I left that to found Kind of Funny, which I then left a, a year ago, almost to the date, to found uh, Colin's Last Stand. So that's, that's what I do now. And I'm here in LA. It's been almost a year, and it's very different down here, and we're getting San Francisco weather. Better, different? Uh, no, uh, different, different. <laughs> you don't like LA compared to SF? I don't know. San Francisco was super expensive. I had a nice, yeah. I had a $3,000 apartment there, which was considered a steal. And it was three bedrooms. Um, so getting away from that, that like kind of, it felt like, you know, if I wanted to spend that much money, I'd go to go home to New York and live in a cool city. Um, but, uh, but so I wanted to come down to LA. It's a little cheaper. It's nicer. The weather's nice. People yeah. are nice. You live in Santa Monica. It's Santa like Monica. paradise. Yeah. I live like two blocks from the beach in Santa Monica. It's awesome. Uh, so no, it's, it's different. You know, I don't want to, it's like children, you know? Yeah. Um, I know I like the New York child better than the other children though. So gotcha. yeah. yeah, there you go. Yeah. So anyway, you are on Patreon. Yes. Patreon.com slash Collins last stand. Yes. Yes. Uh, um, you know, kind of, when we launched kind of funny, we were the first big you know, pay, there, I'm so, I'm so confused it's now. It's all good. We're so, God, I like really need to leave more often. Uh, we were the first big Patreon, um, and we really learned a lot from using that. And so when I left Kind of Funny, I just started a new one. And uh, people have been very kind to me and very generous. So I appreciate that very much. Um, and I know we got some nice crossover between our audiences, too, now we that you were, you were on Fireside Chats, my podcast, not too long ago. And so yeah. there's a nice symbiotic relationship between, I think, lots of gaming Patreons, whether it's ours and Easy Allies or uh, No Clip or whatever the case might be, yep. um, people are getting in and understanding kind of what we're trying to do. So it's pretty cool. Yep. What kind of uh, gaming content do you do at Collins Last Stand? Um, so CLS is four shows that are un- totally unrelated to each other. One is political and historical, but that's on hiatus um, okay. because I wanted to start doing something else, and we'll bring that back at some point. So the three shows right now are Fireside Chats, which is what you were on, which uh-huh. is a podcast series where I interview random people. So. I interviewed someone last week about cryptocurrency. I interviewed oh. a few months ago um, uh, a prostitute, which was awesome. <laughs> really? uh, yeah, it was awesome. She's like a high-end escort. How did you uh, find that person to interview? Uh, that's a long story. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, and uh, next week I have my friend Dave Rubin on from the Rubin Report. So it's always it's just about different people that I'm curious about yeah. and want to just pick their brain. So we have fireside yeah. chats. We have uh, Knockback, which is the podcast series I just started with my brother Dagan who's a lead animator and designer at Sesame Workshop, and it's oh, wow. all retro-themed. So our first episode was about Empire Strikes Back. Our second episode was about uh, Nintendo consoles, ranking the Nintendo consoles. Um, we just did what one. did you give number one? Uh, NES. Okay. Uh, we just uh, did one about the Twilight Zone and G.I. Joe, so that's all that. And then the video game show on YouTube is called SideQuest. Um, and I originally called it that because it was supposed to be something I was going to do on the side, and it quickly became... <laughs> 
the biggest show I do. And that's just, those are basically video essays that I do once a week on Monday, and I'm working on uh, the one for Monday, right before I came here. So while well, I was waiting for Nino Cooney 2 to come in the mail, but... I'm also uh, waiting for it. And, and, I, I think there's, yeah, they, they sent it this week, but it still hasn't come. I think come. Uh, hopefully tomorrow, I'm praying that it's in the mailbox tomorrow. It's, so, they're, it's weird. They're sending out like hard copies of the game instead of just sending out download copies. Yeah, which is cool. I like, yeah. you know, I have no, I used to hate much more on uh, hard copies of games, but it, t- it takes time. Spectrum Internet's terrible. So, <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm, you know, I was really looking forward to playing that this weekend, and now I'm probably going to have to subject myself to more Secret of Mana, which is... We'll, we'll discuss get, we'll get that, that in a bit. God help me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, just some housekeeping on the Sifted side before we get started. Uh, Pactor Factor this week. There's not going to be a new Pactor Factor on Sifted, but that is because episode 100 of Pactor Factor Whoa. is coming up. I can't believe... Well, first of all, we're at like episode 121 of Game Face. I can't believe that. It's um, awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. And uh, we're at 100 is next for Pactor Factor, and we are doing something very, very special for episode 100. So special, in fact, that it's going to take... A good week, a week and a half to produce it. So I'm not going to spoil anything else other than that. Just wanted to let you know there won't be a new app on Sifted this Monday as there usually is. Uh, another episode will roll out onto our YouTube channel on uh, Tuesday for you guys if you uh, aren't subscribers or patrons to Sifted. So just want to give you that little heads up. Um, but I think we're ready to rock, man. Yeah, let's do it. Um, it's a shame we're doing it this week. I kind of wish you could have come in next week because there are a lot of big games that are about to come out. Like I just got review code for Sea of Thieves right before I came here. Oh, cool. Um, I'm really excited to play that after playing the beta. Um, obviously, Nino Kuni 2 is about to come yes, out. Yes. Um, yeah, so there's. It, I feel like next week is kind of the start of the year in a lot right. of ways. It's been a really slow first quarter in Which games. Which is awesome. Because, I, first of all, I've always I've said It's good times, for you with doing the content you do. Well, yeah, Trying to do a video cast yeah. every week, it's a little tough. Yeah, I don't have to be. That's the beauty of not being at IGN or kind of funny anymore. I love both those places. But not having to, like, subject myself to everything. I just... I actually literally, you know, gave my Xbox One away because I'm never going to play it. I'd never play it. And then I, you know, play a few things on Switch. But I, I spent a lot of the time, I, I platinumed Bioshock 2 earlier this year. I platinumed Bioshock Infinite. I'm close to the Platinum and Dying Light. So I've been catching Dude, up. you're so lucky that you I've been can catching do up on that and, awesome. like, make a living. It's awesome. Yeah, I just, it's, I'm playing, the way I keep telling people is, not, or what I keep telling people is I'm playing games the way gamers play games. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. And so it's... I don't have, you know, I have something like 500 PS4 games, like literally. Yeah, and, I know. And I, don't, <laughs> and I don't need to play any of them. And, yeah. it's not, and it's nice. So I'm just reaching out to PR. Like, you know, I'm good friends with, you know, with, with Denny and Nick over at Namco, for instance. And, yeah. and at, you know, they were like, oh, yeah, we'll send you a copy of Nino Cooney. I was talking to Ubisoft about Far Cry and all. So I just kind of. That's another one that's coming soon. Yep, which yeah. I'm super excited about, um, especially because of the political slant with SideQuest. Right. I think we're going to work get, out well for you. It's going to be yeah. awesome. Um, so it's nice to be able to pick and choose. Yeah. 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 I feel a little more normal yeah. and a little less, uh, <laughs> you know, scattered, as it were. People used to get mad at me. I played, I remember the, my last year, kind of funny, calendar year, I played seven, something like 72 games. Yeah. And, and you can see the trophies for all of them. I played them. And beat probably half of them or something yeah. like that. And people were like, that's not enough for you to do a video game podcast. And I'm like, I can't do this. How much I, more I can, can you I can't, play? I can't, I can't do this anymore. But each game is like ten, at least 10 to 15 hours. Yeah, not a lot of them are like 30, 40, 50. Yeah, not, 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 not everything's like Edith Finch. So to be able to sit down and play Dying Light for literally 70 hours in the you know three years, literally three years after it came out, great. Bro, you have found the sweet spot. Yes. I, uh, I am, on the other hand, still on the squirrel wheel, my friend. Uh, I remember when I worked at Game Trailers, it's like I go to work every day and I was the supervisor of everybody. And I'd look at, like, what's in the edit bays today. We had, like, 14 edit bays when GT was in its heyday. And, like, you know, our production supervisor would come to me and be like, we got three bays open. What are are we doing? And I'd be like, shit, 
Like, I have to go talk to my team, like, yo, we need to get content in the edit every day. Yeah, the churn's rough, like man. I can't, I can't do it anymore. I actually, I mean, I kind of enjoy it in some ways. It, it, it keeps, like, life and work exciting, and it makes every day different. But uh, it can be very stressful. It's super If you let stressful. it get to you, especially. Yeah. No, it's super stressful. I mean, at IGN, um, I ran PlayStation coverage. So having, at the time, three platforms to worry about um, with uh, Vita and uh, PS3 and PS4, it was, it was difficult to kind of keep up with everything and then kind of delegate. And yeah. so not not having and then kind of funny we kind of truncated I mean we were pretty pretty shamelessly a PlayStation centric yeah, yeah. channel and so now I kind of just wear that on my sleeve and and do the best I can. I'm what only is one, your area of expertise? I absolutely, mean. and I'm only one person. And and what's cool is that I think the audience, at least for Colin's Last Stand, uh, they understand like they they're getting they get three pieces of content a week and I do the best I can to deliver those things. But so I'm not like a jack of all trades. They right. know exactly what they're getting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so they seem to like it. I want to. I'm going to start doing it. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll let your audience know and the people that are watching. We're gonna—I am gonna do a Let's Play series. I'm gonna roll that out starting in okay. April with my brother, and we're, it's gonna be all old school. Is, does he live local? He's in Philadelphia, so we. Uh, oh wow! So I'm from Philly. Oh, oh, oh! And we, did we? Oh, so we kind of discussed. Right, that. right. And you're a Flyers fan? I'm not. I'm a Penguins fan. Wow, that's bizarre. <laughs> Well, both, I'm, I'm originally from choices, central Pennsylvania. I went to college in Philadelphia. Neither of those choices are, are okay with me. <laughs> well, I hate the Flyers, but I do not hate your Islanders, by the way. Well, thank you. No, no one should because they haven't done anything to anyone. <laughs> you uh, said it, not me. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> God, they're terrible this year. Um, but, yeah, no, so he, I flew him out for a few days to Santa Monica to record the first eight episodes of our podcast. Okay. And then I'm going to fly to Philadelphia in early April for five days, and we're going to record eight to ten new episodes of Knockback, and then hopefully eight to ten episodes of our Let's Play series, which is going to be all retro games. So... Um, I haven't told anyone that yet, but like, that's go. that's the plan. Yeah. Game Face exclusive. Yeah, there you go. Right straight from Colin. There you go. Uh, a couple things, actually, before we go. I forgot to mention Matt Kyle, my normal co-host, who can't be here today because he's recovering from a procedure. His procedure went great. He's feeling great. He even said that maybe if push came to shove, he could have been here today. Uh, we're going to give him another week of rest. He'll be back next week. So I just want to let you guys know that he's doing great. Everything went fine. And he should be back in the co-host chair for next week's episode with all the games that we're talking That's about. Great. That's great. But we do have a great show for you today. We did put. I think we put together a pretty good rundown of pretty good topics. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and let's get on with it. The first thing we're going to talk about is probably the biggest reveal of the week, uh, Shadow of the Tomb Raider. Although... I struggle to say the biggest reveal of the week because we knew about this for a really long time. Yeah, since 2016, I think it was Kotaku that um, I remember it because I, I remember being I remember being so bizarre yeah. <laughs> that there was a guy in Montreal on the subway with a laptop. He's probably a marketing guy yeah. with a Shadow of the Tomb Raider logo on his screen, working on a deck. Yeah. Um, and in the gaming industry, people are always you know sending decks around. People, right? don't, people don't realize either that like game fans are on it. Oh, yeah, It's yeah. like, if you are flying or on a train and you see something like that on a laptop, like, you're going to pull out your cell phone camera, you're going to snap it, you're going to go on social media and share it, next thing you know, everybody knows about it. Yeah, and it's crazy because I think there's, like, kind of a code amongst media types and people in the industry that we all know a lot of things, but don't... I, I personally well, we know a lot. Yeah, but we're under NDAs and and sure, and even so, if, we can't share it. But somebody on a train, yeah, yeah, even friendly, even friend DAs and stuff like that, or just hearing things, hearing yeah, rumors. Yeah, like, yeah. there's kind of a code that we don't, you know, divulge that information. But if you're just a person on the train, yeah, you um, haven't signed anything. You're not, you know, there's no, and you have, and you have no loyalty or alliance to any of these people either. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I felt bad for that guy. At first I was like, that guy probably should be fired, but then I'm like, well, that's an easy thing for me to say. Yeah, um, but would you have been on a train with your laptop open with that kind of information? No, no. although I am no, shocked, you I am shocked at some of the conversations I have had in public. That haven't um, been picked up? That, yeah, that, yeah. you know, about, about games or things that people have told me even in public. Yeah. Um, and uh, I remember, I, I remember at E3 in like 2008, or someone randomly telling me, "Oh, 
which is not a big deal now, but about Mass Effect 2, which wasn't even announced yet. He's like, oh, by the way, your save from Mass Effect will go to Mass Effect 2. And he was telling me this at like the W or something. And <laughs> I'm like, that's a pretty big big deal. But then yeah. you kind of learn not to, you know, and now obviously that's kind of uh, passe. But We always kind of get put in a position. I think a lot of it depends on what kind of journalist you are. If you're the guy, if you're like Jason Schreier mm -hmm. at Kotaku, I'm guessing publishers, developers don't have those kinds of conversations with him. Because you know that if he hears something, he's going to report it. Right. Unless he signs some kind of NDA or something like that. Um, so I think a lot of it is kind of a feeling out process where you're kind of reading the other person or you know the other person and what position they're in and whether they would report something like that. Um, I think if somebody tells me something, I'm probably going to report it. Sure. And well, I think people know, though, that that's the type of games journalist I am, that if I hear something, I'm going to report it unless... I've agreed to keep it off the record, or I've signed an NDA. Sure, sure. But look, there's an advantage of being the other side, where they trust you. Because if people are willing to talk to you and share secrets with you, you have the ability to keep that kind of in your back pocket, and then use that to shape your coverage and your commentary a lot based on that information. You don't have to share that information, right. but you can use that information as kind of like a secret weapon in a lot of ways to prepare yourself for coverage that's to come, make sure you have guys ready to go when you know something's going to break and things like that. Not necessarily break the story, but still you can utilize that information to your advantage, I guess. Absolutely. And that, it's funny because when Greg and I on Podcast Beyond and PS I Love You used to do PlayStation predictions for E3 or for Tokyo Game Show or Gamescom or whatever it was, people would often read into what we didn't say because we had a very strict rule that anything that we actually knew or was feeding into things that we couldn't say, we wouldn't actually guess. So people would take our guesses <laughs> and then work around them to figure things out, which I thought was Reverse engineer it, essentially. Exactly. Because like, and, and it's so funny how long things sometimes, you know, sometimes take. I left IGN at the end of 2014. Uh, Sony Ben's game, which is called uh, Days Gone Now, was at that time called Dead Don't Ride. Uh -huh. And I heard about that game. <laughs> I heard about that game. At least that was what it was codenamed or being called. Yeah. And I heard about it literally in 2014. No one heard anything about it until like late 2015. The game just got delayed and is not coming out this year. So it's funny also how how these through lines last sometimes many years Absolutely. and how things gestate, but also how secretive we are. And a shout out to Jason Schreier because he's one of the only journalists that actually is a journalist in the industry. You can no, he's them. great. Most of these people are just rewriting press releases. No, you're right. There are and, a lot of them are just rewriting the stuff that he writes. Yeah, and politicizing everything for no reason. So, um, so props to him because he literally is the provenance of almost any story that breaks can be drawn back to him, which is pretty Typically, cool. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's actually talk about Shadow of the Tomb Raider, sure. the game. Um, have you played the prior two kind of reboots? Yeah, so I played the first one just a little bit, but the second one, which was called what? Rise, Rise of the, of the Tomb Raider. Raider. Yeah. Um, I, played the, I played the shit out of that game. I loved it. We can curse on this, right? Yep, absolutely. Okay. Uh, and uh, I loved it. I, it's funny. It's one of those games, though. It reminds me of Bloodborne a little bit, where I spent an enormous amount of time with it, but then just didn't beat it. Like, I, I got, you never like, finished it? No, I got to the... I'm, 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 a, I'm an, <laughs> As you know with my platinum obsession, I'm a, I'm a completionist. I like to do everything. Yeah. I sit... I study trophies and like study, study what, what are called roadmaps to see like if, where you miss things and very meticulously go at it. So I played the game for 40 hours probably and got everything and did everything. And then something came out. You realize out. the game I, is only about 15, yeah, yeah. 17 hours long. Yeah, I get the collectibles and do all the <laughs> special things. I think I played, hilarious. I think I got around to playing it when Horizon was about to come out, which we obviously got early. And I think, so that knocked me off and then I never got back to it. Yeah. So it was, it was uh, but I loved it. It was. Oh, you played it for that long. You, you totally get the game. Yeah, so it's, we, it's we can great. discuss it. Um, sure. How much did you play of the first one, the original reboot? Maybe four or five hours. At oh, okay. The most. Yeah. So you didn't spend a ton of time. No, 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 no. So one thing I would say, I played both to completion. Although I did not spend as much time with Rise of the Tomb Raider as you did. I admit, I finished the game and I went back and played kind of some of the challenge stuff, like a little bit more afterwards. Um, 
One thing I would say about the two games is overall, I think I'm a bigger fan of the first one, the original reboot. And what I liked about it was the character development of Lara. She goes from being this like naive whatever to the Tomb Raider. Um, and I think that was kind of the idea to give her a backstory and actually give her a little bit more depth than what we got in the earlier retro games. Sure. Um, and I feel like that was lost a little bit in Rise of the Tomb Raider. Uh, it felt like character development was kind of put on the back burner in favor of, I don't know, I think the gameplay in Rise, Rise of the Tomb Raider kind of went back to the original games a lot more. Like there's actual tomb raiding. Right, And right. so I, I think I actually liked the moment-to-moment -moment gameplay a little bit more in Rise, but I liked the overall experience of the first reboot a little bit more. Um, but I enjoyed both of them. I think both of them are excellent games. Very well crafted, very polished, um, very well paced. Sure. Both games. Yeah. Um, but I did have some issues with Rise of the Tomb Raider. Did you have any when you finished? No, I mean, I, I, I kind of, you know, I thought the, the combat could use a little bit of work. There are great examples of third-person action that I think work better. Yeah. Um, and I'm not necessarily talking about, like, it's analog and Uncharted or anything like that. But when right. you play a game like Horizon or you play some of these very action-y third-person games, I think you can find more fluidity in those games, which, which kind of holds this game back. But what I liked about it was that it made me think about not fighting and it made me think about um, being a little more stealthy and a little yeah. more clever. What I, what I drew out of it, um, you know, God of War is right around the corner, another game that I can't yeah, wait yeah. to play. It's coming um, out fast. And uh, being developed just a couple miles from where I live and, and I can feel it's... It, it emanating out of there. It's almost, it's, it's ready to go. Well, you know, Sony and, Santa Monica was literally just across the parking lot from game trailers. Oh, so that was easy our, for you when we had, uh, we had, we had, yeah, we had our building, there. and was then a the parking old, lot in between, and then Sony Santa Monica. Was it right? the old San, Sony Santa Monica? Yeah. Like the old, yeah, I remember that building. It was like so nondescript. It was awesome. It was like a never would have guessed no. what was in there. No, yeah. as opposed to like Naughty Dog, they 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 work in like a palace. Yeah. Um, but uh, and they're not too far away from there. No, either. they're not. Uh, but what I drew out of that with God of the God of War connection is this idea of making open world games that are actually not really open world but feel open um, yeah. and are segmented. Now games have done that before Tomb Raider, obviously, but Tomb Raider seeped into the gaming consciousness in a way that I didn't expect it to. Um, and you're seeing that in God of War. When I first saw God of War, the reboot, I thought of Tomb Raider. I'm yeah. like, this is a, you know, God That's of War. That's the first game I thought of. Yeah, yeah, God of War needs work. Kratos is a boring and terrible character. It needs more, not humanity, but more character. Yeah. Um, and the game needs more structure because the combat's great, but what are we doing? Are we playing this old kind of game, this PS2 era game? Or are we going to play something newer? And they, they, I love how they drew inspiration from that game because that's what I loved about it the most was it made me, it gave the game scope without overwhelming me. When I played Witcher 3, for instance, I couldn't even beat it because, I, again, my OCD kicked in, and I'm like, I can't do all this. And eventually, I, and, and so, I'm not gonna, overwhelmed, so I'm not going to do any of it. You know? and, that was, and that was kind of my problem. So Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I feel like there were, in this game, like I said, it was kind of a throwback gameplay-wise. It felt a little bit more like the original Tomb Raiders. Obviously, sort of the faux open world that you talked about. It also feels a little bit like Metroid. There's parts of this game where you know where you need to go, but you need a very specific tool in order to sure. access that, that new area. You need an arrow, a fire arrow, to burn down a barrier, or you need a rope that'll help you climb a tree so you can get over a big fence or whatever. And, and I like that a lot about Rise of the Tomb Raider, and that's something I hope that they end up carrying over to Shadow of the Tomb Raider I'm as sure well. I'm sure but they will. I'm sure. But then there were also little things, like crafting was a big part of the game. But you couldn't just craft anytime you wanted. You always had to go to the campfire to craft. And if you play a lot of games like this in the modern age, that's typically not how it works. Like, you right. just have an interface, you can hit pause, it comes up, you can craft whatever you want on the fly, and off you go. Um, so I felt like there were a couple things with uh, Rise of the Tomb Raider that they could very easily fix to kind of get Shadow of the Tomb Raider up to where I think a game should be in 2018. Yeah, I'm sure they will do that. You know, I like, I like more of the Last of Us's crafting system where, just as an example, where I, th there's a... There's a 
an emphasis on real time, like yeah. where you're doing in the action. And I, so I like that. But I do like menu-based things where you can do it at any time. It doesn't feel quite as stifling. So that is a problem. Um, but yeah, you know, I, you know what else I liked about it? Uh, having very limited experience with the original PS1 versions. I, I bought Tomb Raider 3. I got it for Christmas in like eighth grade or something, and that was my introduction to the series was, um, I liked Laura. Like yeah. I thought she was an interesting well, I think character. Everybody did. I, I, but in terms of in terms of her humanity, in terms of yeah. our, uh, of the archaeology, it didn't seem quite as derivative of Uncharted as I would have thought. Now let's be clear: this is derivative of Uncharted. This game oh, would, absolutely. Now it's it's so funny how full circle it comes. There would be no Uncharted um, if it weren't for Tomb or, Raider. You know, Naughty Dog would have never pursued what they call Project Big if it wasn't for Tomb Raider. And then yeah. there would be no of this new Tomb Raider without Uncharted. So they're definitely borrowing from each other. But it didn't feel quite as derivative as I thought. And I would say that I probably liked. Uh, you know, Rise of the Tomb Raider more than I liked Uncharted 4. So it was... Interesting. It, yeah, so it was... Because I like I liked the meat on the bone. No, you know? I, look, I would agree with you in some ways because Uncharted 4, to me, maybe it's because it was to kind of have a protracted development cycle, but there were parts of it where it felt like an older game. Mm. Like, it maybe part of that is the engine that Naughty Dog had been working on with Uncharted for so long. Um, they tried to fake it there are parts of the game where it, it almost tries to fool you into believing that it's an open world game, like some of the Jeep sections and things like that, where you can drive vehicles. Uh, the worlds were certainly a lot bigger. You're not as much loading as you got in prior Uncharted games. But it did feel, in some ways, a little bit like a throwback. But that's a really good question. I honestly don't know which game I liked more, Uncharted 4 or Rise of the Tomb Raider. But again, I liked the original reboot better than Rise of the mm. Tomb Raider. And it is because of Lara, because they did a great job of developing her and making her this character that uh, goes from being this naive kind of daughter of a genius into this gritty ass kicker, for lack of a better better phrase. And I just didn't feel like she moved at all in Rise of the Tomb Raider. She started as the same character as she finished as. And uh, in the first game, I felt like it, it just really transformed my thoughts of her, because you're right. One thing about the original Tomb Raiders is the Tomb Raiders came along, Tomb Raider, original Tomb Raiders came along when we were all playing games like Bubsy 3D and Mario and all these cartoony, kind of outlandish, over-the-top right. characters. She was kind of the first, like, human character that you could actually kind of relate to a little bit. Um, and I think that had a big, that was a big reason why it was so popular and also why it's endured for so long. Um, I think she endeared people to uh, her very quickly uh, and very early on. And uh, I think that's why this franchise is still getting great sequels decades later. Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. So yeah, I'm excited. And Crystal's not making it, right? It's no. uh, 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 make, being made in Quebec, right? So it's yeah. So that's, that's a little cool. risky. Yeah, I think that it it, ca it can be, but I the tools are there. I'm sure they're using the same engine yeah. and the same. And I'm sure that there's. It reminds me of when Bend made that Uncharted game on Vita. Um, the, Naughty Dog was still very much involved in that. It, yeah. it, it's just you know another team doing it. So and I would think that that Vita Uncharted game is actually better than Drake's Fortune. So you can get something good or something great. And I'm confident and I love that it's coming out in September because um, that's a, August and September are those prime moments right before the shit hits the fan where you have a moment to, no, right. to get into it. So I think the timing's perfect and uh, I can't wait Well, everyone's try. trying to avoid Red Dead Redemption 2 at this point. Oh yeah, when they blew that out and, and put it in the fall, they can do whatever they want, right, Rockstar? I mean, so so they're, they're going to screw a lot of people. There aren't too many franchises that can convince Call of Duty to change its release date that it's had for the last 10 years. It's always been first week in November. Right. Now all of a sudden it's in October. Yeah, smart. Get it out. It's you got it. You're playing with a big dog with that game. You don't want to play with fire. Power of Rockstar. Absolutely. It's pretty amazing. So, yeah, the full reveal of this is coming April 27th. So not long to wait. The, te the teaser trailer, I think Sam showed a couple times. Not much to it. It could have been. They could have taken those scenes from any of the prior two Tomb Raider games, and you never would have been the wiser. Um, so we didn't get much. Um, but stuff had kind of leaked out about it. I feel like maybe their hand was was pressured a little bit. Plus, the movie just came out. 
And I'm sure there's some kind of agreement there where they can right. do some bumper marketing off of each other. Right. I wouldn't be surprised if this teaser is shown before the Tomb Raider movie in theaters. And It's so funny, too, when I was reading Jason's story. None of these games have been announced yet, but he's like, these guys aren't working on it because they're working on a Guardians of the Galaxy game. And these guys aren't working on it because they're working on an Avengers game. And all this. It's so there's a lot of good stuff that's unannounced yet. And what I like about this announcement, too, happening in March is everyone's holding their their cards close to their chest now, and I love that. Bethesda was really the ones that started doing that um, a few years ago by with Fallout 4 specifically. I think it's smart to, to build anticipation in short amounts of time, get people engaged, and then you don't have things like Days Gone that are going to dangle for the next, you know, or Final Fantasy VII Remake, I mean, which is never going to come out. Ben's been working on Days Gone for like seven years now? Yeah, I think... Um, I'm trying to even think of what I know that's off the record and on the record. They were working on other stuff in between uh, Uncharted, uh, Golden Abyss, and like I think they were even working on porting that game at some point. And then, um, yeah, then I don't think the full production started until like 2014. So it, it's it's been like probably four, it's too long. Yeah. And the interesting thing about that game too is it's not even being built on proprietary Sony um, like Sony middleware or Sony engines. It's being built on Unreal, so which is unusual, right? That's very weird. It's not a good sign to um, me. Yeah, so I it's, mean, it, it may have been strategic. That's how Sony's kind of spinning it. Is like, oh, we didn't need it, and that so we pushed it. Seven years. That's a long, long. Well, time. just it, I fear for them, and I fear for Media Molecule in the sense that, yeah, um, like, I think Media. I, I hate to say it. I know some of the guys at Media Molecule, including Saban, and they're they're really nice people. Um, and I just think that. Sometimes you have to shit or get off the pot, and I wouldn't be surprised if Media Molecule's last game was Dreams, and I wouldn't be surprised at this point if Ben's last game is Days Gone, just because you have to produce. In the time that uh, Media Molecule's been working on Dreams, for instance, uh, Naughty Dog released Uncharted uh, 3, The Last of Us, and we'll, and and The Last of Us 2 is probably going to come out within six months of it, too. So. And by the um, way, it's not like Naughty 4. Dog is like an assembly line of video games. Yeah. Like It usually takes its time with games as well. Yeah, you got to produce. I mean, with Days Gone, like we do a thing on Sifted. It's a we, it's a Sifted video game fantasy draft. I don't know if you ever played fantasy football. Yeah, obsessively. There's lots of money in it. Okay, yeah. well, it's essentially fantasy football for video games. We take turns. We pick games until we both have ten games on our on each team. And at the end of the year, we add up their Metacritic average, and whoever has the highest score total from the ten games I love that. wins. That's cool. And uh, what we've discovered playing it for the last several years is that a lot of times you get screwed. So. You pick a game, the game gets delayed out of the year, and you end up getting zero for that game, and it pretty much costs you the whole season. Right. So this year we instituted like two bench games, so we have two alternates this year that you can slide in. But I've become very cautious when we play, because I'm always the one who gets burned by the games getting pushed out of that year. So this year I picked Days Gone. I'm like, it's been in development for seven years. It's been shown at trade show after trade show. I'm like, it has got to be one of the safest picks to come out this year, and... No. I heard some weird things about it like over the years. Like I, I heard at one point that it was split into two games, and then I heard that that's not true anymore. Then I heard, like, I don't really, like, and I have some pretty that's knowledgeable not good. sources. When so you I don't, hear yeah. stuff like that, yeah, that, I don't, that, there's problems yeah, going on. Yeah, I don't know what's going on with it, but, and, and uh, you know, but I wish them the best. Like, they, what I love about that studio is they're isolated in Oregon. They're not around anyone, so there's not like this hullabaloo about, you know, like in LA or San Francisco. Yeah. So they get to work in peace. Um, which but is that's cool. probably why it's taken them seven freaking years. Maybe I trust in Shuhei and Scott Rohde that they're probably getting that stuff straight. But, but I am worried about their their long term health, and I often wonder why they didn't you know try to shit out a siphon filter at some point or something too. But, yeah, another you know, franchise. That's, that's neither here nor there. Fallen by the wayside. Yeah. So all right, let's move on to our next topic. Actually, this one segues nicely into the next one. Um, big moves at Naughty Dog this week. Neil Druckmann was promoted from creative director to vice president. Um, he's obviously been kind of the face of Naughty Dog now for probably, what, six years, seven yeah, years? Yeah, I mean, he really came to prominence uh, 
some prominence with Uncharted 2, and then The Last of Us, obviously, yeah. um, he came to prominence. I should be clear that he's a personal, a good personal friend of mine, so I, 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 uh, um, I'm super proud of him, but also you can take what I say about him with a grain of salt, because I have nothing but nice things to say about him. He's a really great guy. And he We're not here to this. criticize him. No, no, I know, but, but what I'm saying is even nice things. You know, whatever I'm saying about him, <laughs> you know, I, you know I, I, I do know him, and uh, he's, he's, he's a really sweet, sweet man and a smart guy. He's and, a great guy. And they, and they I'm did, not friends with him, but I've met him several mm-hmm. times, and he's, he's not what you would expect from someone who's been the face of Naughty Dog, probably one of the top three most skilled development teams in the world. Yeah. You never would guess that if you met him. So um, he was promoted to vice president, deservedly so. Mm -hmm. He's been the face of the company for a long time. He's been a spokesman for the company and its games for a long time. Started as an intern just back in 2004. Yeah, Jack 3, I think, was his first game. Think about that. He went from intern in 2004 to vice president in 13 years. Yeah, and not quietly either. Um, that is insane. Yeah, yeah, he's he's uh, he's a dynamo. And I mean, it shows to, you the kind of guy he is. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously he's a force there. And, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. they know better than we do what he's done there. So the fact that he's moved up the chain so quickly there shows what he's been doing behind the scenes and the impact that he has had on their output. Uh, but my question is, and what we want to discuss is, mm-hmm. how is this going to affect Naughty Dog because obviously he's one of those guys that kind of has has his fingers in every pie and he kind of helps shape the overall he's kind of like Miyamoto at Nintendo he doesn't really like work on one game right he works kind of like on all of them he walks around he sprinkles his magical dust on each project and uh, all of them it kind of makes all boats rise so to speak and he's kind of been doing that for a while at Naughty Dog now that he's kind of an executive do you worry that Naughty Dog's Quality might suffer a little bit. Not, I don't worry about it with The Last of Us 2 because he's still in the creative director right. role for that. Right. I do. I am curious, especially with Bruce being gone now, that right. um, and with Amy obviously gone, Justin Richmond's gone. Yeah. So like the leadership structure there is a little bit amorphous and kind of in flux. And I do worry about, I don't know if worried is, have they ever given us a reason to worry? Not really. Uh, but every game is But basic. they always had those people in the stable right, right. to calm any fears. Yeah, they... I don't know. I, I think I'll be curious to see how it goes after that. Um, they've worked, you know, they tried a two-team structure with when they were doing Uncharted 3 and The Last of Us at the same time. That obviously didn't work out very well. Um, and I don't think that he's a guy that wants to be working on different projects. He wanted to work, go from, and he was supposed to go from The Last of Us to The Last of Us 2. Uncharted 4 was given to them because it had to be given to them. And that, that obviously put, you know, The Last of Us 2 a little bit behind and stuff like that. And they did a great job with what they had with Uncharted 4 and kind of reworked some things. Um, so he has a lot to be proud of there, but what he does have, knowing him personally, is taste. And, Absolutely. And, yeah. you ca- and there is not, I don't want to say there's a dearth of taste in the industry, because that's not true, but there's a lot of people that don't have any taste. No, you're right. And, and, you're and right. like, don't know what's good and don't know what's bad, and he knows that's what's good. That's why there's good. so many bad games. He knows what's good, and so if he can, like you were saying, sprinkle that dust as a VP under Evan and, those, and kind of in that structure... And nurture these new guys that are coming up because there are some, you know, Kurt. Uh, uh, there's, you know, Kurt there and a few other guys um, that are really doing a great job in leadership positions of themselves on various departments. So if he can nurture them and bring them up like others brought him up, then there's reasons to be. There's something special going on over there. I mean, I, I now, look. You said Uncharted Four. You're not a huge fan of. I think I, and, uh, I personally some of the guys who are stepping yeah. up into the roles that he is vacating are guys from that team. Right, but you have to remember. So I've told this story before, right? That when I did the history of Naughty Dog, which was this big piece I did, like fifty thousand words or something like that. That's I was talking. To, I was talking to Amy, um, and I was outside her office waiting for her. She was on the phone or something. I was leaning against the wall, 
And I turn around. This was before Uncharted 4 was announced. This was before PlayStation 4 was announced. And it was Uncharted 4's storyboard. Like, the whole thing. Like, right. chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, or whatever. And I recognize some of those. Thi- like, I remember one of the cards said Scotland, which is in Uncharted 4 at the end, right? Yeah. But what they had to do was come in with a half-finished story. A lot of the stuff was done. And they had to figure out how to put it back together in a way that was cohesive and coherent and rewrite things and bring... Remember, the, uh, uh, what was that guy's name? Todd Stashwick or whatever was originally in the game or something like that. He, right. he was removed. So they had they were given something... Also, it, Amy it, left kind of mid-development cycle. Right, exactly. And, so they were given... I don't hold Uncharted 4 against Bruce and Neil at all. First of all, it's a great game by itself. It's it just is, compared yeah. to their other games. Um, but I, don't give, I give them a lot of credit because they, they, they were given a puzzle box with puzzle pieces, but half the puzzle was already done. Yeah, and they had to figure out how to finish it, right? And that's hard. It would have probably been way easier for them to start from scratch, and the game probably would have been better. But they weren't able to do that. So I don't. I'm confident if this was happening at a mid-tier studio or a studio that had some duds. I mean, when's the last time Naughty Dog had a dud on, in the on the Genesis? I don't know. Rings if it's of Power. Ever really? You know, <laughs> yeah. Crash Team Racing. I mean, a total dud. Like Crash Team Racing was brilliant. I, mean, I don't know. It's just like when's the last time? Like they were they were making PC games in the '80s. They were making Genesis games in the '90s. When's the last time they made a bad game? When's the last time they made a mediocre game? Until yeah, you're they, right. A lot of people yeah. have come and gone in that amount of time. It's the people culture. who are probably Neil Druckmann back in that era. They've had that guy move on and go somewhere else, and they've managed to find the talent to replace it. It's the culture, right? And it's. Well, I it, think everybody wants to work there. Yeah, maybe and that, and maybe they, not long term because I mean. A lot of people that I've talked to that have worked there, they like working there and they like the people, but they all say it's like a grind. Oh, yeah. And that if they had to work their entire career there, they'd be like, just shoot me. But the fact that they can go in and work on maybe one or two Naughty Dog games and then parlay that into a higher position, maybe another development studio, obviously you're taking that culture along with you as well. Um, And so if you worked at Naughty Dog... It's probably very easy to get a job somewhere else. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, people go and, and you know, Justin Richmond, who, who um, directed Uncharted 3, went and, and is in a leadership position at Riot, which is actually right across the street from Naughty Dog. Um, but it's like, the way I look at it is, imagine if Salinger wrote more than just, in terms of novels, like well-known novels, more than Catcher in the Rye, right? Yeah. And someone's like, you got to make a book better than this now, two years later. And then he did it. And then they're like, now you got to make a book better than that one. And they do it. And then you're like, now you got to make a better book than that. And so on. that's why people... That's withdraw- not a fair comparison. Though. Whether it's Harper Lee or one of these guys, I think it's personally the reason why people don't endeavor to follow things up because they're not able to do it. Naughty Dog did it. But and- books, books and games are different because with games, you have, an, it's an, you have an easier opportunity to make something better just because of technology. Technology is always improving. So you always have a better graphics engine. You have a better API. You have better middleware you can use to make a game. With a book... It's always a typewriter or a pen and ink, and then it's all on you. Right. So I get the analogy that you're making, but video games are very unique in that way. Like music, to an extent, movies, certainly, the technology improves and it makes it easier. You can do a lot more stuff in CG today than you could do 20 years ago when the original Jurassic... I mean, have you watched the original Jurassic Park? Not in the last it, it, 15 yeah. years, probably. <laughs> but if you watch it now, you're like, wow, I can't believe I thought that looked good back then. So... With anything that has technology involved, you do have advantages as time goes on because everything gets easier. Everything's a lot more automated as it goes on. I mean, that's why you don't really see a lot of completely and utterly bad games now. It's because middleware has got to a point where any jabroni can pretty much make a game that looks and plays decently. Uh, now it's really up to like the art side of games, sure. which is the secret sauce that not everyone has. And that's something that Naughty Dog has always had. And Naughty Dog is very good at reloading the gun and finding, recruiting 
people who are going to fall in line and sort of keep that aesthetic going in the next generation of, of employees at, uh, at the studio. So um, it's, any, for me, anytime you look at a studio that is, has a track record like Naughty Dog, you always wonder what is that cog? What is that secret sauce? And for Nintendo, it has been Miyamoto for a long time. And so I wanted to talk about this to just maybe try to suss out whether or not Druckmann might be that guy. And now that he's moving on to more of a supervisory role, if that might have any kind of an impact on the studio. Yeah, I, think it's, I, I personally think it has every potential to have a positive impact. Um, because there's other talented people there. Yeah. I, I think one of the things from my understanding of you know talking to him and, and, and knowing him is I think he kind of feels bad that he it seems like like he made The Last of Us by himself. You know, and he's not that kind of guy. Yeah. And I think this almost fits his personality where it's like he uh, 150 people worked on this game, yeah. you know, and he wants them to get their credit. He wants them to get their due. It's not him. He didn't do it all. No, he's he very humble. Yeah, yeah, he is. So I think this actually kind of fits him and you know, I think the pressure is backbreaking to have to be a creative director on, you know, uh, The Last of Us 2, which is the follow-up to very easily one of the great games of all time. Yeah. It's a hard, that's a hard thing to do. Yep. So I give him a lot of credit. I'm very proud of him. All right. Well, we'll see. Um, Last of Us 2, probably next year? Yeah, I would say May or June 2019. Yeah, that's what it's, it's kind of looking like. A lot of people are saying maybe this year. No, no way. Well, I can 100% guarantee you it's well, not going Well, they did year. go on the Game Awards and accept, like, most anticipated game. Right. Um, which I think made a lot of people wonder if the game was coming out this year. But the caveat with that is, is that for whatever reason, that award at the Game Awards isn't like most anticipated game of next year. Right, just most anticipated game. It's just game. most anticipated game yeah, period. Yeah, I, I, uh, it reminds me of No Man's Sky when that won like, yeah, over and over I think, again. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that. Yeah. Well, I, it's just, I, I mean, people, I told people over, I told people in 2016, 2017, when, when I'm like, the game's coming out in 2019. The yeah. game's coming out in 2019. <laughs> it's it's, it, it's going to be the, like the last game. It's going to be one of the best last games for that PlayStation platform. I agree. Remember that The Last of Us, the original one, came out June 2013. Five months later, we got PS4. Right. I think it's going to be a similar thing. And they'll end up doing the same thing. They'll release it on PS4 and PS5. Right. And they'll double dip and get the sales from both platforms. And That's the fun thing is that I don't think people realize that PS5 games are in development. They have been for a while yeah, now. Yeah, and, and PS5, I think, fall 2019. I, I think I think it's well, Dave. You know the rumor yeah. we were talking about on the show last week. Dev kits are out there now yep. for PS Five. I yep. mean, and they've actually been out there for a while. For a while. Yeah. I knew, Just I, now, yeah. people finally had the guts to be like, "Yeah, we we have one." I think it was last fall that I heard that someone told me like for yeah. the first time like we are working on a game for the console. So not that dev kits even matter anymore. No, you're, I mean, just you're to, basically you just developing for a PC anyway. Exactly. Now you know what what the limits are, and that's pretty much all that matters. It's not like back in the day with uh, the cell processor or. When you had like custom chips from from like some company put into the N sixty four, or you have like ATI building the Dolphin processor right. for that doesn't that doesn't happen anymore. No, it's all just Nvidia off the shelf parts that you're just building a PC that can fit in a small form factor. Yeah, I can't wait to see what they come up with and, and when and how they announce it. I assume the announcement will be Q one twenty nineteen or something like that. Maybe maybe even E three or something E3. like that. And Most then uh, because they announced they revealed PS four in Manhattan in February of two thousand thirteen, which was cool but weird. Um, so yeah, I'm excited. I, I, I'm excited. Like I think because of the economic recession, the last generation was extended. I think people forget yeah. that generations usually last five to six years, not seven or eight or nine years. And and uh, I know that the interstitial consoles, you know, with Xbox One X and with PS4 Pro, like kind of confuse people. But I think that's just them testing the waters. I wouldn't even be surprised if the new consoles were modular in some way. But we have to kind of see like what will. No, I've what, had this what... idea for a long time of consoles where, and people thought I was crazy when I brought it up like a year and a half ago. Literally, where you can just buy a graphics card to snap into your console. And it's just like every two years they put out another graphics card that's in like 
a form factor that makes it look fun or whatever, but it's just like, you have this console that you can upgrade. You snap in a new graphics card. You snap in a new processor. Whether it'll happen or not, I don't know. It was a crazy idea I had, but... It seems like it seems like a nice idea. Maybe a little complicated for the normal consumer, but remember that, you know, N64 but everything's had backwards compatible, back. right? But everything's backwards compatible now. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's no more confusing than Xbox One X and Xbox One S and Xbox One. Right. I mean... We're already there, Colin. Xbox One, <laughs> Xbox One was the confusing name. We are already there. Yeah, yeah and what's the Xbox Two? Is that still going to be? I don't know. I don't know what the hell they're going to do. They should just call it Xbox and just call it PlayStation and just make everything backwards compatible forever, back that, to these current that would machines. Be nice. And just put every, trophies on PS4 Classics, wins. and I'll be a happy camper. There you go. <laughs> All right, we're going to move on. We're going to talk next about a game that Colin's been playing. Anytime we have guest hosts on the show, we like to uh, get topics or games that they're actually playing and they're excited about. I don't know if you're excited about this one, though. Uh, it's The Secret of Mana yeah. Remake. Yeah. Now, the game's been out for a while. You've been playing the living crap out of it. Yeah, I played on, I've played. i been playing it on Vita in, in quiet moments. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's just bad. Oh, look, yeah. The, so the reviews have been terrible. Like, yeah. It really got raked over the coals. Were they right? Because in some cases, the overall opinion of a game isn't necessarily always correct. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I don't think Secret of Mana was ever very good. And, okay, and, wow. And it's... And it's it's this, you know, we have these, we have these goggles. What we look back on the SNES era with the RPGs, right? And there are great RPGs on the SNES where we're talking about Final Fantasy IV and Final Fantasy VI, where we're talking about Lufia, where they were talking about the Quintet and Enix games that kind of had RPG or, or sim elements like Act Razor, whether yeah. Secret of Evermore, all of these kinds of games, right? There's a lot of good games, and Secret of Man is a good game, but it was always kind of looked at as this pinnacle role-playing game on a console that had plenty of role-playing games. Now, I think PS1 had a better catalog of role-playing games, but I respect the Super Nintendo's catalog. And what I'm thinking now, playing this for the first time since the 90s, in this new... Did you really like it back in the 90s? I liked it? it, but even back then, I'm like, I don't really get okay. why it's fine. It's fun. You know, like, I don't... I think about other Squaresoft games at the time. I think about its contemporaries, even on Genesis with Fantasy Star and stuff like that. And I'm like, this game doesn't hold a candle to any of those. And Fantasy when Star is a pretty high bar. And when I look at when I look at this game and I'm playing it now without the mystique of the 16-bit kind of graphics and stuff like that, and this is kind of garbage 3D art, and and the control scheme sucks. The game crashes constantly. I've never had a Vita game crash even once or twice. This game's crashed. You've never had a Vita game crash? Not not. What I'm saying is regularly. A game will crash once or twice, but yeah. I play extensively on Vita. I've never had a game run like this on a Vita okay, ever. Gotcha. This is a game from a big publisher. This isn't a game from yeah, Idea yeah. Factory. You know, but and, did you uh, notice that they had, they announced this and literally like three or four months later it was released? Yeah, and I think it's a port of an of maybe an iOS game or something because they're playing around a lot with uh, they did it with Tactics they just did it with five Final Fantasy five I think and six which is a really a horrifying thing to think about um, but it made me just think in my mind was this game ever as good as people talked about it and I think the answer is no and and I and and because I mean how I much know. could a remake alter the overall quality of the original game. It, I, I mean, it, it, it's, the, it's, I'll not say it's change, not helping. It's not helping. It's it, not going to change the story. It's not going to change the writing. It's not going to change the character development. All things that are very important in any RPG It's probably not going to change the combat system, although we'll talk about a remake a little later on in the show where maybe that is the case. Right. But in this case, it didn't. It's not going to change the battle system, the magic system. So maybe you're onto something here. Maybe this is just one of those games that, for whatever reason, established some kind of a cult following, and people just kind of piled on and lifted it up to heights that it didn't deserve to reach. Yeah, I think that people just it, it, 
listen, it's all subjective. Like, if people love that game, that's totally great. But what do they call the series in Japan? Seiken Densetsu or something yeah. like that? Final Fantasy Adventure, the first one on, on Game Boy that was recently remade like a year or so ago for Vita um, and other consoles. I think Vita, maybe PS4. It, it even struck me then. I'm like, I don't, this isn't as good as I remember it. And when I go back and play other old games that I love, we mentioned Act Razor, or I'm a huge old Mega Man fan, Castlevania fan. Those games hold up and are brilliant oh, to this yeah, day. Yeah, so when I put, put that, you know, the other thing though is it's just this a reliance on this cheap graphical look that sucks, and it just removes. Yeah, I'm not a like, fan of it at it all. The look like at the game is. It removes like a vacuum. The 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 aesthetic, the the spirit, and the story, and the feeling, the immersion of these beautiful pixelated graphics that that forced you to use your imagination a little bit. I look at this, I'm like, look at this right now. Like he looks like this looks like shit. It really does. Yeah. When you know, I first saw it, look at that. That is so ridiculous. It looks the game I remember Secret of Mana being way darker than this, yeah. way more moody. Like what is this? Wait, roll that back, Sam, that dude's face when he walks across there. <laughs> the guy's like purring. Like why couldn't they just take Secret of Mana and just re-release it? Well, I think you, you actually you actually touched on something there that I think is very important, is that when you look at games from the 8-bit and the 16-bit era, a lot of those games, your mind is filling in the blanks. You're allowing your imagination to control what your mind's eye sees. And, I mean, you go back to like even like the Atari 2600, and what was kind of filling in the blanks for you in a lot of cases was like, the instruction manual, the art on the instruction manual, the box art, like, because the games are so crude, you have to kind of wonder, what does this really look like? And uh, a lot of times, the actual manifest... <laughs> character is so bad. A lot of times, the manifestation of what the developer comes up with when you try to upgrade something like this falls well short of what was in your mind's eye back yes. when you were 11 years old playing this epic RPG. Absolutely. And I think that it's... it's um... You know, people ask me, like, what's the most, what do you think is the most atmospheric game of all time or immersive game? And I'm like, I think Castlevania 2 is. Yeah. Because it's, it's it, like, I love Dead Space. I love Resident Evil 4, all, you know, uh, Out, Outlast and all these kinds of games. Great atmospheric games. But that was a game that was scary as shit because you didn't, you had this horrifying box art. You're gathering Dracula's body parts to put him back together to kill him again. Yeah. <laughs> and you're kind of just skulking around as a day-night cycle. There's, like, this kind of morbid Eastern European kind of aesthetic. And I like that kind of stuff where yeah, yeah. I don't feel like technology has necessarily always benefited video games. And that game couldn't run on a Super Nintendo that way. <laughs> but God, it shouldn't run on a Super Nintendo that way. You know? So you're, you're telling everyone to steer clear of this. No matter how rose-colored, rose-tinted your glasses are if for you, yeah. classic JRPGs, stay away. The original Secret of Mana, I think, is on the SNES like the, that they just released, right? The one with all the... So, like, if you really want to play it, go. that one's got to be better. I haven't played it <laughs> I haven't played it in many years, but it's got to be better than this Why crap. did you stick with it so long? Uh, just because you kept waiting, like, okay, at some point this is going to break or... I have this, like we've mentioned it many times, this OCD in me, yeah. where I also I also don't like sinking my trophies and having like eight percent. Oh, geez. So I'm just gonna get 100 percent and get done with it. But but like you said, there's also nothing to play. Like I, I yeah. there's plenty to play, I guess, if I looked. But nothing. To we're, we're, I'm in wait and see mode, you know. Yeah. So um, the second Nino Kuni comes, maybe it's maybe it's arrived when I when I've been gone. Have a little gift I, when you get home. I'll throw my fucking Vita out the window. <laughs> So. You're definitely not going to yeah, do that. No, no, no. I know you love I the Vita more would, than anyone I've ever met. I would never treat the Vita <laughs> with such disrespect. Are you kidding me? All right, let's move on. We're going to talk next about E3. Okay. We're going to talk about Microsoft at E3 this year, but I think that's going to lead into a bigger discussion of what's going on with the show. So Microsoft announced this week that it's kind of following suit, and 
actually following in the footsteps of EA a little bit, and it's basically taking its presence off of the show floor to LA Live. Uh, its press conference is going to happen there. Most of its big events are going to happen there. Um, it's, it, most of the kiosks that you play are going to be there. And instead, what's going to be left on the show floor is a Mixer booth. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Mixer is Microsoft's answer to Twitch. Um, we don't stream on Mixer. Obviously, we're streaming on Twitch. Um, and basically, it's a place where you go, and I'm sure there's going to be influencers in there streaming away in the Mixer booth. But Microsoft, yet another huge publisher that has decided to leave the E3 show floor. Colin, how do you feel about this? How did you feel about, first of all, how did you feel about when EA made that decision? How do you think that's all kind of shook out? And now, how do you feel about one of the big three leaving the show floor? Well, it's significant that it's a hardware manufacturer. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know... Especially it's when you just launched the X. Yeah, exactly. It's a harbinger of things to come for E3. Um, E3 is... Hasn't I? I fucking hate E3. Like I, really? I, yeah, I hate it. I, I, I think I've been to twelve of them or something like that. And I always, I always, it was always the bane of my existence because it doesn't focus on what I think makes video games good and fun, which is nuance and spending time with a game and studying it and and anticipating it. Instead, it's just lines of people, way too many people. And now they've opened it to the public, so it's even worse. I can't even imagine going to it anymore. And so I like that big publishers are moving and shaking and kind of you know, shirking what you might think was their responsibility almost to be there, to kind of prop up um, the gaming there industry. there is kind of a little bit of a responsibility to the ESA. Yeah, and, the, and, and to its partners. And the industry at large kind of to be there for the biggest show of the year? Sure. And no, it, it, I, if I were a third party, if I were uh, an Activision, a UB or something like that, where half of our games or 40% of our games are being sold on that platform, I'd, be, I'd question that. But I think it's part of I didn't of even think about that angle, the third-party angle. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, it's essential that they work in a symbiotic way, right? I, but I think it's, it's, there's too many shows. You know, I've heard this from my PR friends. Like, there's too many shows. They don't know what the hell to do. Like, look at PSX even this year, right? PlayStation Experience yeah. had no press conference because they don't know what they're supposed to do. Well, because they were at E3. You run they're, out of stuff after a exactly while. That's exactly right. They're at E3, they're at Paris, they're at Tokyo eventually there's only so many games yeah and how many times do you need to see them and want to see them and i think trotting them out over and over again for you to play hands-on at pax hands-on at e3 hands-on at gamescom hands-on at paris it's like enough already you yeah. know and so i think this is a trend towards smaller um presences at, at yeah more intimate presences off you know i don't want to be a dick about e3 specifically with i know people are excited to go and i know that it's exciting for people that aren't in the industry or have small blogs or whatever to go but it's not really a show for you, right? And so if it loses its meaning in that way for, to get press and people from around the world to get hands-on to kind of proliferate that information, which is becoming less and less of, then I wonder if E3 is even going to exist for much longer. Because you realize if, we've... I look, I've, this past year was my 20th E3. Yeah, I mean, it's insane. Just a day myself to the, a Did you go to the one in Atlanta? No, I did. Yeah. That was my first one. <laughs> I love that there was one. And, and obviously the notorious Santa Monica one. Yeah, uh, that was 2007. Seven or yeah, six? I, six or seven. I think it was seven because I think it was the first year I was at either or at IGN. But my point was that people have been say have said this so many times. Like that's it. E3's done. After the one in Santa Monica, people were like, "It's over. Oh my gosh, this is E3 now. Like this can't carry on like this." But they did respond. But it's like by a cockroach, making, though. Yeah. It, it just. I don't think it will die. I don't know that it. Maybe maybe dying is a little morbid. But it's maybe I'm wrong on that in that sense. But remember. We used to have Kensha Hall. We used to have a huge middle ground at E3. E3 yeah. used to be way bigger than it is now. It, like, it and, did, and I yeah. think people, 
kind of lost sight of that as well. We have, you know, the two halls. But there was used to be a bunch of shit in the middle. In between. And yeah. there used to be stuff on all the floors, like in the in the in the concourse. It's not that anymore. And in in my especially in my post IGN years when I went a few times, it seemed to me to be kind of a shell of its former self. Big publishers are taking up way more space because there's way more empty space. There is empty space on the floor now. Absolutely. Um, well, there's going to be a big hole now. Yeah, Microsoft and Sony used to be right next to each other. I, I think it's super smart in this in this always connected era where people are watching streams, where people like influencers, where they trust people like you or I or whoever they trust. Maybe they don't trust us, but they trust someone. Somebody, yeah. You don't really need these shows anymore. Like, I, I really it's like think... we don't go to the press conferences. Like, I, oh my God, no. I literally went to every E3 press conference for the first 14 years E3 existed, I haven't gone to one now in like four years because there's no reason. It's like, why would I go and sit in a theater where there's people talking, there's noise, and I can't do anything? Instead, we come here, we sit and we stream and we watch E3 with, uh, with our fans, with right. our users, Is with our right? subscribers. It's more fun for me. It's more rewarding for them. They feel like more of a part of it instead of just sitting there watching a screen by themselves. And I think a lot of that has to do with how kind of covering games has morphed and evolved over the last sure. five, six, seven years. But as a journalist, I feel very little reason to go there. It's like we used to go there. We'd watch the press conference. We'd walk up to the stage with our crew. We'd stand around for like two hours waiting to do an interview with someone like Scott Rohde, who, you know, is busy, obviously. And he finally comes out an hour after the time we're supposed to interview him. And everyone's angry because we have to go to the next press conference or whatever. I, I, there's no reason to do that anymore. Because all you're getting yeah. is just a repeat of what they just said on stage. It's like you just need this guy. In you know, we had a TV show on Spike, so sometimes we just have that stuff so we can run it on the show, so we have a more personal touch instead of just showing highlights of the press conference. But if you don't do that stuff, there's very little reason to be there. Yeah, I agree, and I think that you know, it's something else that I feel about it too. That E3 is emblematic of these other shows are emblematic of. I went to Gamescom a few times, just horrifying. <laughs> you know, Tokyo Game Show, horrifying. But it's Tokyo it's, Game Show. Once upon a time, was a really good experience. But it's cool for me because I love Japanese games. Talk about a shell of its former self. Oh, it's sad over there now. Tokyo Game Show isn't even a shell of its former self. No, it's very sad. The last one I went to was very sad. I think that was 2014. So I can't even imagine. How I went sad in it was 2012, now. and by then it was already like we had brought yeah. like a crew of like seven people, and like after the second day, we're all like. What do we do now? I just went and spent a lot of money at Super Potato. Yeah, like everybody um, does. Yeah. But uh, I, I hate the preview cycle. I think previews are disingenuous. I think publishers are predatory with previews. And I think E3 is symbolic of that because it's a whole massive three-day preview cycle, right? <laughs> and yeah. previewing games is bullshit. I, I, often, I often bring up, it's a cool to, be anticipate, to anticipate to watch gameplay, to go hands-on. All that kind of stuff's great. But when you're seeing these vertical slices of games that are not representative of the rest of the game by design, it starts to become, like I said, predatory. And I think about it's two. Like bulls gold. I, I, yeah. I think about two somewhat recent examples. When I saw Knack, which is horrifyingly bad. Yeah, I'm not a fan. We, it we, has its fans though. We had. We, I saw the game and played the game many times before it came out, right? And it was awesome. And I was like, oh, this game's going to be great. Like, they, they showed, like, little tight pieces of the game where I'm like, oh, oh the right. mechanic. So they and fooled then, you, isn't it? Exactly. And I felt like an asshole because I felt like I didn't mean... Because then you go out and report that. Exactly. And I didn't feel like I, I didn't mean to, to mislead you. I don't think I did based on what I saw. But you kind of feel like an asshole, right? Yeah. And then the Order 1886, the other side of the coin. I went and saw the game. It looked horrible. It was running like shit. I, I came out of the preview event. I was like, this game is going to be terrible. It's going to be terrible. Everyone got mad at me. Everyone told me right, I was wrong, though. and I was totally right about it. So, <laughs> so previewing is, is, a game, is a thing where you can't win, right? And 
I like the idea of us collectively not feeding into this hype cycle, this pre-order cycle, this buy, 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 you must have, you must want, you need it. I think that these kinds of things contribute to that. And I don't understand why anyone would want to participate in that cycle. So I'm so glad, at least from my perspective, where I can just pick and choose what I want to do and not have to be there on the ground anymore and preview games and kind of hold my nose knowing that I'm sitting in this theater at some publisher's you know, behind closed doors, some publishers seeing exactly what they want me to see, not letting me touch the controller, not showing me anything. Oh, the game crashes, I won't do that when it comes out kind of shit. Yeah, yeah. And I, so maybe I'm a little pessimistic in that way, but I think we have to grow up as an industry a little bit. And I think this is a, a line, this is a this is a, a vestige of the 90s to me. And, no, I'd agree with that, yeah. but don't you think that just for the purposes, the nuts and bolts of doing the job, that it's much easier just to have everything in one big building? Because look, now you have the convention center, you have the two halls there. Then you have EA over here doing its thing. You have Microsoft over here doing its thing. And granted, they're not that far away. It's a couple blocks. But that's a lot of time. And most people, when they book their E3 points, I don't have to do this anymore. But back in the GT days, it's like one, every one of our editors was booked from the minute he walked on the show floor until the minute the show floor closed. He had one appointment every hour all day with a crew. And he went and he did all his appointments. Then he came back and brought all the, the tapes back with him, blah, blah, blah. It was this process. But when you have these disparate locations scattered all over downtown Los Angeles, it kind of interrupts the flow and the scheduling of actually covering the show. And I feel like in a lot of ways, these publishers leaving the show floor, it's a little bit, it's a lot of bit selfish. It's not just selfish talking about the journalists who are hustling trying to cover this. It's also selfish when you talk about the industry. It's like the industry needs EA and Microsoft to be at E3. This is the one time out of the year where we get national coverage on mainstream outlets. It's when Yahoo finally talks about the video game industry. It's when all the big news outlets, the CNNs, all those, those finally show up and talk about video games. And when you start pulling the best stuff out of, and look, this is one of the three platform holders we're talking about here. You start pulling that stuff up out of the show, suddenly the show isn't such a spectacle anymore. And it's just kind of this shell of its former self with a lot of open space. And I feel like maybe E3, starts letting more fans in. Yeah, maybe. And I, I This could be kind of the, the death knell here, like the thing that makes it start cycling down the drain until it just turns into another pack. Or Gamescom, which yeah. is what you definitely don't want, because that, that show is horrific. It is. It's hard um, to cover. And, yeah. and uh, it's, I don't know, from my perspective, again, just from you know my opinion, it's, it's not right or wrong, and other people are going to feel differently. I just... I think it's it's like Microsoft leaving is like drawing the curtain back and showing an emptiness that I think has always kind of been there anyway. What could they do to get like why don't they just send people builds? Why does why does everyone have to be so you know have a debug kit like everyone has a fucking debug kit? Just send them the games. You don't even need debug kits. Yeah, now you don't because now you can get <laughs> now yeah Sony with PS4 started putting their previews even on the PSN. So yeah. it's it's like it's these shows exist because publishers want to control everything. Not they don't want to relinquish anything. And remember back in the day, they don't really do this anymore, but you were there back in the day when it's like, oh, you want to see a game? We're gonna, you're going to go to Sweden. You yeah. want to see a game? You got to go to Mexico. And it's like... No, there were, th there were stopped... times where like you had to go to like Italy to yeah, review Assassin's, Assassin's Creed. Creed. Yeah, exactly. It's like, and... no, no, just send me the disc. I got five debugs sitting in my office. But, like... but that's the thing. It's like, we're, it's a half step, right? Because that doesn't happen anymore because everyone's like enough already. Like we well, have they, other things to do. They still do have events like that. It's though. not they just anywhere one... near the no, way it used no, to be. No, you're right. You're right. Not even rem like maybe 5% of what it used and to be I think when the I started. funny part too is that a lot of people used to look at games journalists and think that we were like bought off or they were jealous because we got to go, that we didn't like doing this No, I hated it. And can you blame the audience for this? 
thinking that when they're no, putting you up really. at, at. I remember playing Kingdoms of Amalur, I think, um, at the Cosmopolitan in, in Vegas, which is I love Vegas. I go there all the time. But one of the great hotels there, yeah. they put you up the for best, four days. Hotel. Yeah, and and it's like, and they give you your own. And I'm like, you literally could have saved yourself hundreds of thousands of dollars, but also just sent me the game and. So That's I think with control that you were talking about earlier, awful. though. It's hard. Well, I don't know if you ever went to any of the Call of Duty review events that they used to have. No, where, no, no, that wasn't my game. Where they would put everybody up at, like, a golf course or whatever. with like just And you'd stay in hotel rooms. And they would go there, like, a week and a half beforehand, wire up all the rooms with Ethernet, and you would play the single-player campaign in your room. You come in, it was very guarded. You, the console will be locked with the steel case with the lock it's on the absurd, front. It's absurd. And they'd be like, so you have today to play the campaign. And then the next two days, you would go into this big room where they had everything wired up to play multiplayer. Um, and I remember we came back from one I was on. We were doing a show called Invisible Walls at the time. And I came back and I talked about how I was in Ojai at this event. And they flew us in a helicopter from L.A., Santa Monica Airport, in a helicopter up to Ojai. I got, like, sick in the helicopter, and I was like, dude, like, just let me drive there. Like, I really don't want to fly in this rickety military helicopter up. It was nice to see the coast when I wasn't, like, trying to keep my lunch in my stomach or whatever. But I think the perspective of a lot of people who haven't done this is, oh, that curries favor for that game. But I think what it is is if, at least when you're dealing with more experienced journalists, it did not curry favor for that game at all. No. You're putting me, in my opinion, in a non-ideal situation to play these games. And Call of Duty and Activision were great because you'd sit down, you literally had like a 5.1 system set up around your little couch in your hotel room. But a lot of times that's not the case. You go to these review events and you're sitting at a kiosk and there's 10 dudes lined up beside you at a kiosk and it's really hot in the room because like all this gear is on and the AC can't keep up. It's not, it wasn't helping anybody in my opinion. And you're right, in a lot of ways, the readers or the viewers or the fans or whatever of various publications would be like, wait, what's going on there? That's a little shady. Yeah, you can't really blame, blame them for saying blame. that. No. Even though you know that it was the exact opposite of it. You That's... can't blame them for thinking that somehow that was currying favor. Absolutely. And I've said many times, like, uh, I was in a senior position at the biggest gaming website in the world for a long time and nothing ever untoward ever happened. Like, yeah, I, I, like yeah, I'm just yeah, straight yeah. up saying, I'm just straight up saying that. Like, it never happened. Yeah. But what I often, what I often said was, um, all it required, like, when you go to a review event, I'm sure it's still the case today. There might be like 50 outlets there, right? But the publisher doesn't really give a shit about any of those outlets, except for like maybe seven or eight of them, right? No, you're right. If seven or eight of those outlets were just like, we're not going, then they would stop doing it. No, you're if, right. If IGN and GameSpot and Kotaku and whoever else were like, we're not doing this anymore, like, right. then they would stop doing it because little blog with 10,000 views is being brought over to be cool, like, so they well, look cool, the, but, the but they don't The influencers do muddy the waters a little bit. Because well, the, the ethics are a little different with those guys. Right. Their, their ethics are different. They have nobody, they have no checks and balances, no one looking over their shoulder. I've talked about YouTubers a million times on a million shows. I'm not a fan of how the editorial works with those guys. But I was, we're talking about the angle of they want those people to be there. Um, and if we decide, or the top seven traditional publications decide not to go... Those influencers are going to go. They're going to go, but they're going to... You have to understand, YouTube and Twitch and the influencers of new podcasting and all that kind of stuff, they're going to eat those sites lunch eventually anyway. So it's a matter of just how... They're slowly nibbling away at it, but maybe they'll eat it a little quicker. But it was just a thing I I thought of when I was at IGN when this wasn't quite as crazy as it is now, where I'm like, no one... Whenever... I remember when people... We we would have to figure out, like, who's going to go cover this game, and it would... You just see the person's face drop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The I gotta only, go again. Like, the only advantage of being senior there, well, there's many advantages, I guess, but one of the great advantages was, like, eventually I just didn't have to do it anymore. Right. You know, I'm just like, yeah. I'm not doing this anymore. And, and 
And truth be told, a lot of the green people who are on your staff, they're excited at first. Yeah, at first. Because yeah. they, 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 they were they would be jealous at first. They're like, mm-hmm. you're always the one going on these mm-hmm. trips and blah, blah, blah. And then you come back and you said you didn't have a good time or whatever. And then it finally comes to the point where you're like, okay, I can start delegating this to them. They're excited the first five or six. Like the third time they have to go to like Dallas or Portland or one of these towns. They're like, I, I get it now. <laughs> now I understand why you were never excited to go on these. Things. Yeah, the only advantage is like you live on a, a company card basically while you're gone. So you're basically living for free. So there is a, yeah. there is an advantage to that. But yeah, no, I agree. I, I just think we have to we have to restructure the industry to I think be a little more intimate and uh, a little more transparent and kind of let go of these old legacy just because E3 existed doesn't mean it needs to exist today. No, you're right. And I, and I, I really right. do feel like it, it doesn't. These shows um, are cannibalizing each other. And until everyone can agree that we only need like maybe one of these a year and not yeah. five or six or seven or what we're getting now, which is like a convention in every town with 100,000 people or more, there's going to be like a, a convention in Flint, Michigan and Daly City, California soon. You know, it's like, it's like what, like why? <laughs> well, there's a why? PAX in every quadrant of the United States now. I, and, I now and now there's going to be one in Europe. Now that the parent company of PAX bought Eurogamer and US Gamer. They're going to take over EGX. I'm sure right. that's going to become PAX Europe or whatever. Dude, and I get, I'm not trying to, like, again, I'm, I, you know, I'm an old man now. I, I, I sound like an old curmudgeonly man, and I am. But, but, and I understand, like, for gamers, this is a way for them to meet other gamers. This is a way yeah, for them yeah. to buy merch. I to love PAX. On. I think PAX is awesome. PAX is cool, but again, it's, it's way better than, than, like, the traditional conventions. But to me, I'm just like, this doesn't define us. This doesn't define us. We're letting this stuff define us, no, but right. it doesn't have to define us. What should define us is our individual tastes, um, our ability to talk about games, to think about games, to treat them like the art form they deserve to be treated as. And I think these shows are commercial exercises. And as, you know, I love the market. I am a conservative. I have no problem with that. But it's, I don't know. I, I just, I've always had a problem with it because it just, it's just buy, 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 look, 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 pre-order, pre-order, pre-order play, 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 and I'm like, it's just, it's dehumanizing us in a way, and I don't like it, so. So, to bring it back around to kind of wrap up the yeah, topic. Where the hell, what the hell was the topic? <laughs> yeah, it's Microsoft oh, okay, yeah. leaving the E3 show floor. We're rambling. So, do you think that this will have big re- repercussions? Yes. On down the line? I because think so. this, look, EA's one thing. One of the big three, one of the platform holders leaving is something else entirely, because this could be a domino that just sends a bunch of other dominoes toppling. Well, do you want to be... Think about, for people that don't know um, e- E3's layout, when you walk into West Hall, um, there's usually like IGN, GameSpot, and a few like Atlas is usually up front for some reason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then if you go back, then Sony dominates the back and Microsoft dominates kind of the left. Yeah. And so now there's going to be nothing there. There's going to be smaller publishers there. Maybe Sony will annex it or somebody else will take over. But eventually, if these things start whittling down, then do you really want to be there anymore? Because then it's not the cool place to be. I respect that Microsoft's doing this. Well, you could look at it from that perspective, or you could look at it from the perspective of Sony and be like, hey, they're gone. We can make our booth bigger. We could make this whole hall PlayStation Hall, essentially. Nintendo, you go over to the other one. We got this one. You got the other one. I think it's kind of... I think I personally don't think it's going to look... The reason Sony... The Sony layout that it is now, which is pretty extensive, it's like an L shape, is it's always crowded. It always looks like the hot place to be. Yeah. I just think that optics are going to be really important here. And, and um, you know, I think the original Harbinger was Nintendo not doing press conferences for a while. Yeah. And then I think EA leaving, obviously, was that. And it was the next one. And Microsoft leaving, obviously, with hardware now is important. But I respect that Microsoft's doing it. And I've, I've said many times well, how much I... you can't tell I, them how to run their business, right? No, but I, I think... I love that Microsoft is just doing a bunch of shit. Like... I'm not an Xbox fan. Uh, I, I, I want them to do well. I think it's great. I think they obviously stumbled. I think the Xbox One is obviously a, a pretty disappointing console, all told. But um, that that 
Phil Spencer and all these guys are just doing their thing and making different choices and, and bold choices to get attention back onto their brand and to kind of turn the ship. I think it's so cool, and I think this is actually similar to backwards compatibility, similar to the Game Pass with the first party stuff, similar to all these things. Another reason to pay attention to them, to talk about them, to make it look like they're forward thinking, and I think they might be more forward thinking there than their competitor. Yeah. And, and um, we're going to see how that plays out, obviously, in the next 18 months, two years. We'll see how many people want to make that trek down to LA Live. It's not that far, but... No, but when it's, you know, 95 degrees out, it is. It absolutely is. All right, let's move on to our next topic. We're going to talk about... Not just Fortnite. We're going to talk about Fortnite a little bit. But the big story from Fortnite this week was, hey, we have a mobile version. Not only, hey, do we have a mobile version, but the mobile folks are going to be playing on the same servers as the people on the other platforms. Typically, mobile games are kind of cordoned off into their own servers where you play against other people who are on mobile and are using the same control interface you are. Uh, in this case, that's not what's happening. They're actually throwing mobile players onto servers with console players and PC players. Um, so we want to talk about that briefly, but sure. I think the bigger discussion is cross-platform play. And is it as big a deal as people make it out to be? Um, Rocket League is a game where a lot of people have kind of been up in arms over the fact that PlayStation has not played ball. In fact, across the board, really, PlayStation has not played ball with any of these games that we're hoping to build one unified player base across all platforms. Everyone else seems to be on board with it. Yeah, Microsoft was on board Microsoft with is on board with it. Uh, they have to be, but yeah. Yeah, they do have to be. Nintendo's on board with it. Uh, we're applicable, obviously. Not a lot of online games for Switch at this point. Yeah, but which is incredible. Nintendo's not on board with anything. Right. <laughs> like, literally anything. You can say, Nintendo, like, the sky is blue. And Nintendo like, no, not, I don't think so. I think it looks orange. It's like... <laughs> It's magenta. It works for Nintendo, though. Yeah, no. In a it, lot of cases, it works for Nintendo to do that. It's uh, it's interesting. I think, first of all, obviously, mobile players are going to be at a massive disadvantage. Yeah, uh, you would think. And console players are already at a massive disadvantage uh, against PC players. So it's um, it's strange. I think it's a way to kind of uh, make this platform or Fortnite more ubiquitous, which is cool. And I, I'm more fascinated as someone who refuses to play online games. I don't play them. Um, Why do you refuse to play them? Because I play games on my own. I, I play games to get away from everybody and everything. So, okay. <laughs> so, so to, so to, that's always been my thing. I've never been intrigued by even back in the day Mario Kart on SNES or you know Mario Party. You never or, liked multiplayer gaming. Like there's a few examples. Like a few. Obviously, there's a few examples like that. I where I. What's I, your favorite multiplayer game ever? Rainbow Six Three on Xbox. Okay. The Xbox uh, I'm, no, I'm there. I was there, dude. I loved that. I game. played the living crap out of that. That game just got me because I was a freshman in college when it came out. We had T1 connections in my dorm room, so That's I used nice. to host games, and it was, it was great. So, but typically I like to play. I, I mean, typically almost always I play games by myself. So I'm more fascinated watching this entirely new subgenre of shooter come up. Um, that's sucking all the oxygen out of the industry. Very similar to the way for a while mobile games seem to be sucking the oxygen out of the industry. And it's, it's cool to watch from an economic standpoint because, you know, not only with, uh, with uh, what is it, player unknown battlegrounds and, and, and obviously Fortnite and how they're claiming that they're getting copied and all this. A lot of really fascinating stuff. I often say that the stories behind the games are more interesting than the games themselves. And this is one of those situations where I'm like, this is so cool watching this erupt. Well, it's and, also and crazy that the company that copied the original game, that game is doing far better than the original game at this point. Yeah, which I is... I mean, PUBG, is, as big as it was, it never hit that cultural inflection point that Fortnite has. It's because they, they as far as I understand, you've known more about this than I do, I'm sure, is that wasn't it because they refused to do anything about the cheaters, the, they weren't releasing maps, the maps were too big? Well, I think um, a big problem with PUBG at first was that it was an indie game, and it didn't have a big team working on it. And as it become a sma became a smash hit, they did a really good job of staffing up and kind of working really hard on getting patches out there. 
but it was really bumpy at first because they just didn't have the one as the money started coming in they were smart and they did reinvest it in into the studio so that they could get patches out and fix the game more quickly but man, it's hard to compete with a studio like Epic. Yeah, it might. It might. The funny thing is, is it might not have been smart. For I them to actually, do that. I actually, by the way, <laughs> I called this before, way before. As soon as I heard about Fortnite was aping Battle Royale, I'm like, PUBG is done. No, you're not going to be able to keep up with Epic. No matter how much money PUBG is making, not only are they not going to be able to hire fast enough, you can't just hire people and all of a sudden you're just cranking things yeah. out. It's like there's an assimilation period when you bring people into your studio. They have to learn how you work. They have to learn the tools that you're working on. They need to learn the, the chain of command, the, the chain of development and, and creation. And Epic's been there all along working on big games. And I just knew that if as long as Fortnite's Battle Royale mode wasn't terrible out of the gate, that they, the path was paved for them to take over this genre. And that's exactly what's happened. Yeah, it's cool, man. Like I love, I like this, you know, it's so simple in its premise, which is which is something I like. It's not complicated. It doesn't really require, you know, obviously inherently doesn't require teamwork. And 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 so it's it's this it's I like I, again I, just as a, a a commentator, let's say uh, uh, someone who just watches. I, I I love seeing this happen. And and with what happened with Twitch the other night with Ninja and with Drake, Drake and all that, yeah. it, that's a cultural phenomenon. It that's is, a, that's, a, that's a bleed through that that oh, gaming yeah. I think needs. I think it's good for gaming. And but it's not just those guys either. I mean, if you follow a lot of athletes on Twitter or whatever, they're all playing it. They are all playing it. Like uh, I'm a big Steelers fan. There's a young receiver named Juju Smith Schuster. Yeah, he, he was in that game, wasn't he? He actually got into that game with Drake. He's, I mean, but you see, he's another one. He's just playing Fortnite. He goes out and he get, goes by, buys a Fortnite toy, and then he goes out and like shoots himself, like attacking people with his Fortnite toy, and then he puts it up on YouTube and it does like five million views. This stuff has never happened with PUBG, and a lot of it I think has to do with the art style. Uh, Fortnite is a much more welcoming, T-rated game, whereas PUBG is a little grittier. Uh, you look at it, and you're like, okay, that game's probably more for an adult crowd than it right, is right. for the younger crowd. Um, and, you know, if I was a parent, I would probably be okay letting my 12-year-old kid play Fortnite. PUBG, maybe not. Right. Um, and I think that's helped it a lot. But I think the bigger discussion here is, what is the lesser of two evils when you're talking about cross-platform play? Is it better to have that wider audience so everyone can play your game? Or is it better to make sure that the people who are playing are getting a more balanced experience so that they're not turned off by it? I think it's the latter, personally. I think, I think there's a lot said about, about this cross-platform play that seems cool, but I think it's actually going to cause massive problems. And, and certainly is going to... Because it could to, turn people off. Yeah, it's, it's going to cause massive problems with this. I mean, not enough where it's going to destroy the game because it's so popular. But that, think about a game that has, a, out the gate, a shooter of some sort, maybe... Um, with normal lobbies and all that kind of stuff, uh, deathmatch or whatever, that's broken out of the gate because it's on Xbox One, PS4, and PC, and it kills the player base immediately. It's a risk. And I don't think it's a risk really worth taking. I think Sony's actually somewhat smart by not doing it. And, and uh, because it protects your ecosystem, it protects quality. Well, Sony's um, not playing along because it doesn't need to. Yeah, they don't have to. I mean, maybe, that's maybe really what change, it comes down to. It's just, time. look, if PlayStation 5 comes out and the positions are swapped, then, then the position on this is going to swap. Suddenly, Microsoft is like, we don't need cross-platform. And Sony will be like, well, we're the good guys. We'll do cross-platform. We'll allow everyone to play against our players. I think it's. I honestly think that this isn't even something... I think like cross-platform play is not even something that most gamers even care about, right? It's. It reminds me of what we used to talk about with backwards compatibility, where everyone's like, why can't... Um, you know, PS3 play PS2 games, uh, the newer PS3. Why can't right. PS4 play PS3 games? And they're like, well, that's cool, but... No one cares. Like, well, like, so what, like that, that's what it's saying. It's like, you think people care. Well, if you but look at the no. Wii, remember when the Wii launched, it was backwards compatible with the GameCube. Right. 
And then the later models of that, the first thing it ditched because, was the backwards compatibility. Yeah, because you didn't, you didn't need it. It's just extra money you have to spend that no one no one is buying a PS4 to play PS3 games. Yeah. And, and uh, I would like to be able to do that. Well, but going forwards, I don't think backwards compatibility is even going to be a thing because all these consoles are just going to keep playing the games from before at just a lower resolution or whatever. Yeah, I mean, everything's going to scale now. I agree. I agree. And, and I do agree with you, too. I think it's more important to have a balanced experience because people will play a game and maybe play it a couple times. If they're getting their butt whooped, they stop playing. And you're right. Like, playing against any platform, playing against somebody with a mouse and keyboard is at a disadvantage yeah, when you're no. talking about shooters. Yeah, no. Uh, or, I mean, think about an RTS or something like that. If they were ever to mix console players yeah, in with PC players, you can't. you'd have no chance. You can't. And, and, and so I... These systems, these ecosystems should remain separate. I, I, I don't think we have to look at it as like a Venn diagram where there has to be massive crossover. We already get crossover because third-party games are on all these consoles, so that's about yeah. as good as you should get. By the way, you're a Steelers fan? I got to go. I'm a Pittsburgh across the board. I, I don't go. care about baseball, but... Go Jets. <laughs> uh, all right, let's move on. We're going to talk next about Yakuza 6. Now, you have, have you played any of the Yakuza games? No, I haven't. You haven't? Nope. Are you a Shenmue fan? Uh, I played Shenmue back in the day. I don't know that I'd call myself a fan of it, um, but but yeah, I think there's some rose. We want to talk about rose tinted glasses with a game from my perspective. No, but, I, I'm right there with yeah, you actually. But because uh, isn't Shenmue three still in development? That's still it a, is. That's still a thing. I think it's supposed to come this year. They're saying this year. Man, oh man, maybe it'll run on Dreamcast. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no, not game stream. But Greg, uh, my old partner, at kind of funny, huge Yakuza fan. So we used to talk about the games pretty often. Yeah. Well, I've been playing Yakuza six. Um, reviews have just started trickling out. I think it comes out today, I believe, either today or Tuesday. Uh, I've been spending a ton of time with this game. I've been playing it for the last couple weeks, and I don't know if I would call myself a Shenmue fan or not. I think I would say when Shenmue actually came out, I liked it because there was really nothing else like it. But I feel like if you play, if you play games now that are in that genre, it feels very dated. Very dated. But you can, I still appreciate Shenmue because without Shenmue, you don't get a lot of the other stuff that came later. A lot of the open world, uh, even not, even a lot of the GTA stuff, I wonder if it would ever happen if it weren't for Shenmue in the first place. Right. Um, I think the problem with Yakuza 6 is that it's still like Shenmue. Um, and I think maybe people, maybe somebody did go back and play Shenmue in the last year and really liked it. It's possible. Right. Um, I think there may be a couple people at Easy Allies who are big fans of Shenmue. And maybe they would really like Yakuza. But uh, here's the thing. Yakuza 6 is feels like a game that was made back in 1999 or 2000 before all these innovations came to open world games. So you don't realize how much being able to shoot or drive cars adds to the genre until you go back and play a game like this that doesn't have that stuff. And I think it's been the same thing for me when I've gone back and tried to play the old Shenmue games. It's like, it just feels empty and boring. And this game, it has mini games and melee combat and a crap ton of cinemas. I mean a crap ton of cinemas. And they're not cinemas where anything happens. They're cinemas where, where characters have conversations. And they're just sitting there. And it's like watching us except for like 60 hours of just camera cuts from one face right. to the other. Sounds it's, thrilling. Yeah, I mean, a lot of games have kind of solved that problem with sort of on-the-fly radio transmissions. Um, instead of having two characters sitting there just discussing something ad nauseum, they found ways to make it more integrated into the overall experience and less obtrusive. And with, with Yakuza 6, you don't have that option. You can skip the cutscenes, but you're not going to know what's going on with the story. Um, 
And these cutscenes just go on forever and ever. And even though the writing, actually the translation in this game is one of the best translations I've seen in a really, really long time. The writing is really great. But you're just sitting there staring at these character models for literally 30 or 40 minutes at a time where they go on these really long-winded conversations. And it just grinds the whole experience down to a halt. And then once you finally do get out of the cutscenes and you go out into the world, there's just, in, in, in comparison to games like Grand Theft Auto, there's just not that much to do. I would even argue that the earlier Yakuza games offered a lot more to do as far as mini games and things to actually do as you're kind of walking around Tokyo. Um, this has like a, a karaoke game, a batting cage game. Uh, there's like a handful of stuff that you actually can do as like side, but they're very simple. There's not a lot of depth to them. It's very easy to master them very quickly. And then you're just left with this game where you kind of watch a bunch of cutscenes and then wander around the city and get in a fist fight. And the melee combat isn't particularly great or reliable or realistic or engrossing. I don't know. It's, it's Metacritic average right now. It's sitting at an 83. And uh, to me, that seems pretty high. That'll fall, I'm sure. All the, you know, the reviews will trickle out and, and probably will lower it. But I'm more fascinated from a business perspective about kind of Sega and Sony kind of embracing on this, on this franchise pretty heavily recently the last few years where... Sony especially. Yeah, like where it seems like these games sell. Like, obviously. And they're like giving them playtime. They're, and they're, they seem to be churning Yakuza games out way quicker than I thought, which might be kind of what you're speaking about here. I, I feel like, I, I, I feel, God, God almighty, I feel like there's been like five of them in the last like few years. Well, see, I don't... What, what happened was they were being released in Japan all along and were not getting brought over to the mm -hmm. West. So essentially, Sega had this backlog of Yakuza games that had already been out in Japan for a long time. So it started doing stuff like Kiwami, where calling them remakes maybe isn't fair. Even remasters is a bit of a, is a, bit of a stretch, I Port. think. <laughs> Port probably yeah. is the, the best word to use. Um, so it had this backlog of like four or five games that it was able to very quickly port over to these new consoles and get them out in the West very mm. quickly. Um, I mean, I would say Shem or, uh, Shenmue. <laughs> I would say that Yakuza 6, honestly, is maybe my least favorite Yakuza that I've played. Because it's almost like, um, this is the first one that was made for Generation 8 hardware, by the way. So this is the first one that was built from the ground up just for the PlayStation 4. And so it is definitely the best looking game in the series. But to me, it also feels a little rushed. The last Yakuza games, there was tons of stuff to do on the side. I never really got tired of it. This game, there's just not enough variety and enough stuff to do as you wander around the city. Mm. And uh, since there's no gunplay, there's no vehicles in the game, and all there is is fisticuffs, like, that wears out really quickly. It sounds thrilling. I, I really am, I had struggled to play this game. I've had it for a couple weeks, and I'm still only about 15 hours into it. And usually... I have a game for a couple weeks, like, I would have finished this game by now. But it's always like I get done with, like, my daily routine, and I sit down and be like, okay, what do I want to play? And this game, it was very hard for me to convince myself to say, I want to play Yakuza 6. Um, and uh, I don't know. So, again, I think people maybe who are fans of Shenmue, maybe the simpler um, open-world games in that vein might really enjoy it. But for me, someone who's kind of moved on and really does love open-world games and has embraced sort of all the innovations and the, the changes that have come to that genre over the, over the last 10 years or more, actually. We're talking about like almost 20 years now since Shenmue came out. Um, to me, it falls really flat. Yeah, well, I mean, if you want to walk down the street and get into a fist fight, just go to Venice Beach. Someone will fuck with you down there. <laughs> You'll get into a fight. That's for sure. So, uh, yeah, we, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Like, I played the demo on PSN they put out. It was like free for everybody or whatever. 
And uh, I just got like a little taste like the first hour, hour and a half. And now I've kind of gone deeper into the game. And it really hasn't evolved much beyond uh, what I played in the first couple hours in the demo. So I guess what I would say is uh, if you played the demo and you liked it a lot, this is more of the same. If you played the demo and you're kind of like, eh, I wonder how maybe it will evolve. It, it really doesn't evolve at all. Uh, pretty much what you got in that demo is what you're going to be doing for the bulk of the game. The story is pretty good. The writing, as I said, is excellent. Uh, if you're willing to sit through cutscenes that are really dull as far as like the presentation is concerned. You're selling this game. <laughs> I, man, I, I, oh man, are you selling it. I'm not really enjoying it, to be honest with you. Um, Sounds like a wait and wait for it to be $15 or PS Plus or something like that. Yeah, again, <laughs> unless you're like an old school Shenmue fan. Because this really is like the spiritual successor to Shenmue. Sure. Um, it's as if Shenmue was frozen in time, but but was released on the PlayStation 4, I guess is the best way I to I think you're going to see that with Shenmue 3. It, that's what I was, that's what I was leading <laughs> into, is like I'm really wondering if like Shenmue 3 is going to be just like this. I think you know exactly what Shenmue I think 3 is going to be I like. Do. That's why when they announced that, I'm like, I don't care. But the one thing, I didn't care that much either. I certainly wasn't like jumping up and down and falling on the floor like some people were, but... And I, again, I did like Shenmue when it came out, but the genre has left it so far in the dust. And everything I've seen of Shenmue 3 so far, it looks just like Yakuza. Uh, the one thing I would say Shenmue has that Yakuza didn't have is it does have a lot more variety. Um, it does, I feel like, sink you into its world a little more. It's a little more immersive um, than, than Yakuza is. But I don't know. I'm 16 hours into it, and like we talked about at the beginning of the show, I got... Sea of Thieves coming in. I got Nino Cooney coming yeah, in. Cast I got Far Cry coming in. There's no way I'm going to keep playing this game for it and ignore those games that I just got. Yeah, Far Cry. I mean, that's especially like, oh my and god. And that'll be, be still 30 some hour commitment at least. Oh, definitely. So Definitely. Can't wait. So yeah, I think that's what I would say. If you played the free demo and you liked it, you'll probably like the game. If you're on the fence after playing the demo, I would just steer clear. So, all right, let's move on. We're going to talk next about more Japanese games. These are of a different sort, though. Yeah, you can say that. <laughs> you can say that. So today, the, this <laughs> game in particular. This game in particular. Yeah. Uh, so today, yeah. the UK banned Omega Labyrinth from being released there. Um, Sam, roll the footage. Oh my goodness! Let's oh see. my god! So this is Omega Labyrinth. It is a JRPG. Yeah. I believe this was originally released for the Vita. Is yeah, that it's right? coming here Vita, PS4, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe PC. And it's... <laughs> I don't know that it has a lot of redeeming factors to it, artistically. I mean, I don't... So, as far as I understand, they were specifically about the sexualization of underage girls, right? right. That was the big thing with them, right? That's and, totally, exactly, and that's what we want to really talk about. And I, I think that that's a totally valid complaint. Right? Like, you don't want to go down that road, and that's something that's way more accepted in Japanese culture and, um, and has been forever. But I will say this. That this seems to, be, really this seems to be a weird line to draw, specifically because I can name 50 games like this that, I, that, that are on Vita right now. You know, like, it, it doesn't, like, Monster Mom Piece and all these kinds of games that are totally ridiculous. So Any I just said wrong Kagura game. Yeah, like I so I just wonder. But this, this game does. I mean, these girls do look really young. I mean, I agree with you, but all I'm saying is, like, I have no problem with them saying, like, we don't want this on our platform, we don't want this in our territory. That's totally your prerogative. I'm not really a censorship guy, but this is this is sensitive stuff, right? All I'm saying is that this seems to be a, a capricious and arbitrary sort of line to draw when there are a bunch of other games that came out um, that seem to kind of do the same and similar things. I, I, uh, I tweeted out earlier today that I, I reviewed Monster Monpiece at IGN, which is a horrifically perverted game. 
like a, a game where you literally rub these girls no, on the screen. No, you do that in this game. Yeah, so which is always, someone's always getting rubbed, right? Yeah. In one of these <laughs> games. And it's, it's all the Idea Factory and Omega Games and all those kinds of studios that are putting these games out and publishers that are putting these games out. So I, I, my whole take from it was, I was like, okay, like, but what about all these other games? And, and Are you sure that that game came out in Europe? Monster Mon Piece? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I thought that this was the first game that they straight up banned in a while. I think it is. So yeah. like maybe like seven or eight years, I thought I read. Like straight up. Because here in the United States, this game's getting an M, an M rating. Yeah. Um, and I, Are you surprised it's going to be allowed to be released in the U.S.? No. The, because, because that's the point I'm trying to make. I'm not surprised by that at all because... I would say 10% of Vita's catalog are these games. Like, it's, it's, not, it's like not even a joke. Like, these games come out constantly. So I, I just, it's just that people don't know about them. And, yeah, and so I think that this is... Yeah, like, like, Idea Factory just wants to sell 25,000 copies of their game and they're going to go away, right? Like, they don't need, <laughs> they don't need, to, they don't need to promote these games. So, so, yeah, I understand why people have, like, take umbrage with it. Sure. And I would prefer that there be no censorship. And I, I think it's good that we're releasing all games here as long as they're not, you know, X, like, you can release X-rated games, but they're not going to go on the platform holders. But ESRB looked at the game and said that this is rated M. So I think we're a little less um, Puritan here, maybe. Like, the game's also being banned in Australia and in, other, in, in other territories. You have to do what's most responsible for your societies. I'm not someone here to, you know, people always attack America for Second Amendment stuff and all that kind of stuff. So I try yeah. not to put that out. Right, right. You do what you got to do, yeah, right? Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not judging you at all. But, uh, yeah, I just thought that this was, when I was looking at the footage and then thinking back into my, my, my memory bank of the shit that I've seen, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm like, well, I mean, all right. If you've ever been to Japan, you've seen stuff far oh worse God. than this. Yeah, um, I mean, like... And it is a cultural difference. For whatever reason, Japan, even though very conservative in a lot of other ways where sex is involved, is okay sexualizing girls who at least appear to be very young. Yeah, it's... We, it's... we had kind of a, a similar controversy with uh, Xenoblade Chronicles 2. Um, there were some girls in that game that were dressed in suggestive outfits. Oh, yeah, and they edited it, right? Right, and they ended up changing it for the U.S. version. Right. And I do agree with you. There's a lot of games that have slipped through the cracks. But I, I guess the question is, where do you draw the line? Like you said, you're, you're, you're happy it's coming out here. It doesn't appear to be censored in the U.S. at all. You have no problem with this game being released in the U.S.? I... I guess not. I mean, like, I, I, I just, I haven't played it, right? Like, look, I, I, I don't... I, I'm very familiar with the game you're talking about. Right. But this game really is kind of egregious. I mean, these girls, they don't even try to make some of them look like they're right. of age. Right, right. No, I, 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 again, I don't, I don't think I've seen enough about it to have, like, a conclusive thing. I always err, just generally, having little information, right? Uh, <laughs> I generally have, I generally err on the side of, like, let's censor as little as possible. Um... But I agree. But but a thousand percent. But so so my thing is like if the ESRB, which is a pretty, I've known developers and publishers that have worked with the ESRB. They're hardcore. If you don't get something through and they have a problem, you have to pay the entire license, the entire fee again. No, you're resubmit. Right. It can delay your game. Yeah. The ESRB looked at this game and said like, it's. Are it's you an, surprised it's, it's by that? Um, I am. I, I guess I'm not specifically because they've not. They've in the past taken these kind of more niche games and said, like, we're rating this an X if you don't change things. AO. And they, or AO, yeah. rather, right? Yeah. And uh, they, that they, and so that everyone's... Here you can see some of the rubbing going on. Right. Which is, you know... I mean, these girls look pretty young. Yeah, they do. I mean, it, but it's... But the only point, again, that I'm making is that they don't look any younger or any, like, different than a lot of other games. Yeah. That's, that's all I'm saying. So it's either... That's why I'm afraid... It's why you don't introduce a new tax because you can never get rid of it, right? Like you don't. I, I would rather just draw the line to what we all can universally, or at least close to universally, agree this is inappropriate, right? Yeah. Um, as opposed to saying, you know, moving the bar up and up and up because then we might not like 
what ends up getting censored five or ten years down the road. No, you're right. So it's 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 a it's a you don't I don't want to play this. I don't even want to see it. Can we just get it off the screen? Because I don't even want to look at it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but it's but it's but it's uh but uh, look, I'll say this. Like, I know people that like those kinds of games. You know, no, I mean there that's, are, that, that that shit's keeping Vita alive. There are people <laughs> on Sifted who like. I mean, look, we can see the data of what people watch, mm-hmm. and it's like we put up stuff for like Senran Kagura. Like, I guarantee you that is one of the most watched pieces of media on that day. Guaranteed. It won't get a lot of one ups. We're, I mean, that's our version of likes on Sifted, right. and it won't get a lot of comments, but... But you're watching it. I see you guys. You, you fucking, guys are watching this stuff. You fucking perverts. <laughs> we know what you're up to. Yeah. But look, Sen- Senran Kagura, at least most of those, the girls look like women. Right. Um, that game, to me, like, I also felt uncomfortable watching that footage. Like, when you said get it off the screen, I was like, yeah, let's get that off the screen. Yeah, it's like, it is a little... Because I, I, I don't like... Um, I, I'm of the mind... And this might make me sound Puritan, but that we've over-sexualized everything. Yeah. Like, why does... It, it reminds me of, like, a movie where you, like, have to watch a sex scene for five minutes. I'm like, that's fine. I like having sex. I like... You know, it's fine. But I don't... This doesn't add to the story. Why am I... Why do I have to watch this? Yeah. And, I, and I feel like we're kind of sending weird signals to people and, and emphasizing it too much. And so maybe that's just a little piece of it. Obviously, no one's going to play this game. No one knows what this is, right? So we're, we're giving they it a lot now. of... Yeah, now you do. <laughs> now you can't get it out of your minds. I know who you guys There's are. There's a bunch of people pre-ordering right now. <laughs> Idea Factory loves you guys. But yeah, no, it's... it's uh, or whoever the hell's publishing. I'm just guessing it's Idea Factory. Because it uh, probably is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, t- so to me, it's it's just... I don't know enough about it to know... You know, when you see a game or... I've, I've actually never even seen it. I've only read about it. But that game like Rape Play or whatever, those kinds of yeah, games yeah, that are yeah. really terrible. I think we can draw a line there. Yeah, yeah. I think you could draw a line where the, if the mechanic has anything to do with sexual assault, yeah. you could probably make sure that that doesn't At come out. At least the girls in this game act like they're enjoying it. I don't know. I, I, it's just, <laughs> the point, like, so that's the line, right? We can have a line. Yeah. Of de- there, there should be, I, I'm not saying there should be no line. But, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, just, I, I'm just surprised by the kind of the reaction to it, specifically because the ratings agency that's pretty stringent rendered its verdict you know and um, i have dealt with the esrb extensively throughout my career and they are a bunch of hard asses yeah like they would come and scrape game trailers and they'd send me a report and say okay well we just spot checked 300 games you had the wrong rating on 78 of them you didn't have descriptors for like 241 of them. age gates and all this yeah, yeah your age gate wasn't working on this one and so you're not a part of the esrb security council so that little certificate that we sent you in an email is like null and like they tried to get us to like okay you're certified now now you can put our little logo up on the corner of your website. We don't care about your stupid logo. And then you're just funding, leave me alone. And then you're funding some poor son of a bitch playing Omega Labyrinth in his in his office, rubbing what appear to be underage girls' bodies. Yeah, but you're but you're absolutely, you're absolutely right though. Yeah. I mean, it is weird. That's what you're doing. The ESRB passed that game through based upon my experiences dealing with them, where they're a bunch of hardline like. No, like, we draw a line in the sand, and, like, you can't step over it. Like, it's shocking to me that this game is an AO. Now, it's possible that the SRB didn't get all the information, right? Like, when a game, so people, you know, but when people don't know is that the publishers and the developers give everything to the, to the SRB. So they're like, the, the SRB isn't necessarily playing the game. They're basically saying, like, show us a smorgasbord of some shit you think might be offensive. Yeah. So drug use, cigarette smoking, you know, girls showing a cleavage, whatever the case might be. So maybe they just happened to leave out all of the uh, the 
that would be the a bits and huge pieces. mistake <laughs> because yeah, the ESRB, man, like they may be asking for this code right now. Like, wait a minute, the UK banned this game over sexualizing underage girls. Mm-hmm. Like, yo, you need to send us some code. Yeah, yeah. And if that's the case, if Idea Factory or whoever went on and produced those games, they may have to just trash them all and then change the code or go with the AO. You get an AO. That's like, actually that may help sales. That's, well, that, on PC, but that's a death knell. For, you can't even be on the platforms with yeah. an AO rating. So it's, it's um, yeah. So I always just you know I defer to no censorship until you show me something where I'm like this is like if you showed me that in a vacuum and I had I I wasn't covering PlayStation for so long. Yeah. I'd be much more mortified than yeah, I yeah. probably am. You know? Well, you're also a big Vita player and you're very aware of all the games on the platform. Oh, and some might say too aware. No, but you're so, right. That yeah. is a big part of the Vita's library at this yeah. point. Um, and you're starting to see those games kind of bleed over onto the consoles now. They'll port the Vita to PS4 or even Switch now, some of that stuff. Yeah, like I think they're going to pull the plug on Vita soon, like officially. They, they called it a legacy console three years ago, yet still put games on it. But <laughs> with the PS Plus stuff, kind of, they announced that, you know, they're going to start migrating yeah. all those games over next year. So it's probably I mean, the last year, really, of Vita viability, right? We've been saying that for a long time, but yeah, probably. I mean, the console came out in 2011 in Japan. It's been going, it's, it should be very proud. Well, it's doing very well in Japan. Yeah, still it trucking just along. Didn't do very well here. Nope. So. Nope. All of you are responsible for that. Yep. Not me. Uh, all right, let's move on. We're going to talk next about it. I mentioned earlier about how we're going to talk about another remake later on in the show, and this is it, the Final Fantasy VII remake. Uh, yeah, so this week, uh, Square Enix decided it needed to hire more people for the project. Yeah. Uh, it said that the base of the game is pretty much finished, but they need to bring in these people to actually... I don't even know what that means. I don't. First of all, I don't believe them. Second of all, I, I'm... I think it's a coin flip whether this even comes out. Like, I'm, like I'm really, ever? Yeah. I'm like really... I think CyberConnect was the studio working on it, which is a bad studio. Yeah. Um, and uh, Or a mediocre studio by Japanese standards. Um, well, CyberConnect is like the people you bring in to just do a quick and sloppy port, usually. I just don't... I, I Even at kind of funny, like, uh, I think this was announced, what, 2014 at PSX or 2015? One of those years. I kept saying to people, like, this isn't coming out. Like, like I, because even here, then you didn't think it was ever coming out. No, because here's the thing about it, to, from my perspective, and I, think, I don't think it's necessarily not coming out, I think it's a coin flip, is because it's Final Fantasy VII, and you really are making a big mistake if you release something that isn't up to snuff. If you release something that's like a six on Metacritic, you're going to eat shit. Yeah. And, and especially because it's episodic or that's what they're go- aiming for. So if the first one doesn't get it, whatever, the Midgar scene or whatever they're going to do first, if it doesn't nail it, this game shouldn't have never been touched. And I don't understand why they're doing this to it. Um, I'm not a huge Final Fantasy VII fan. I think it's a great game. I actually recently platinumed it this past summer. I, I went back and played the PS4 version for the first time since probably middle school or high school. And um, it's a great game. But why do we have to always... Why is what's old always new again? I would rather them just put this, these resources, stop tantalizing people with this shit when we all know it's not going to be very good. I, I'm, really? We all, we you all... just assume it's not going to... Come on, man. Like, Did I, you I... like Final Fantasy XV? No. Not at all? No, I, I'm not going to say it's bad. It just wasn't for me. I played it for maybe eight or ten hours, and I was like, it's dudes driving around in a car, and that's cool, I guess. I, I, that not another, what I'm looking for in Final That Fantasy. was another example of a game that I played where I felt like when you look at its contemporaries and the genre, it didn't hold up. But I think a lot of fans of Final Fantasy had waited so long for the series to actually kind of come into the 21st century that they were like, well, wow, this actually kind of plays like 
The Witcher or like a typical modern action sure. RPG. And I think that was good enough for, for a lot of them. Well, after 13, anything would have been good enough, right? So it's like, I think that that was part of the problem was that not only with 11 and 14 kind of introducing MMO to, to the series, I think, especially with 14 kind of frustrated a lot of traditional players. It frustrated me simply because it felt like we had to wait longer, even though I'm sure that didn't take resources away from those, you know, those various teams. But with 13 was so just dumb like it was just so it was just so bad that i think yeah 15 is a better game i haven't but, really resonated but, with the uh, final fantasy games since the playstation era yeah I, I well me neither i think 10 was i don't like 10 12 i think was a, a better game than 10 you could tell it was two games because they had like a producer and director like yeah. in the middle of it um but six and four are, like untouchable games to me like th th those games are brilliant brilliant games and they don't final fantasy 15 doesn't hold a, a fucking candle in those games and and to me, I, I just look at this and I'm like, yeah, it looks beautiful, it's exciting, um, but do you really want this? Do you really want this? This is one of those I things. I do. Where, I do want to play. I do want to play it. Well, you want to play it, but but just generally, think about it as a general um, like a, a notion of a Final Fantasy VII remake. Like you have to be careful what you're asking for with this because this is going to paint that game, and I wonder, and, and, and I, I think that might be a problem. I, I wonder if this should be even called Final Fantasy VII remake. Shouldn't it just be called Final Fantasy VII with a subtitle? Yeah, which they kind of did with the other, you know, the PSP game and, and Dirge of Cerberus on PS2, where they weren't obviously the games, but they told a different story, like Zach's story, Vincent's story. Um, I just look, I mean, this looks cool to me, I guess, but I just, if they're still hiring and scaling the studio at this point, this game is, I can't imagine this is any closer than, like, next gen at this point. Well, you look at Final Fantasy XV, I mean... I was convinced it changed that... from another game into Final Fantasy 15 and scrapped seven years of work to basically start again. I think that what people have to look at with this, and I don't know if you agree, Shane, is that there's a problem at Square Enix. Like, there, like there's Japan. a massive Square Enix Japan. Yeah, Japan, like there's a problem. There's there's clearly a, a problem of leadership. There's a problem of direction. No one, you know. I, I, I think there's I, a problem I, of conceit. I don't. I, yeah, I don't get it. I don't. I don't know what they're thinking. I don't know what they're doing. I'm. 50,000 times more excited for Dragon Quest XI than I am for anything Final Fantasy at this point. And, and I love Dragon Quest. I'm not saying that it's like a comparison where Dragon Quest is bad. I think Dragon Quest rules. But that's the thing that Enix always got before they combined it was that they, they stayed true to that spirit. Dragon Quest, games, right. Dragon Quest games are recognizable from the first one, Dragon Warrior, Dragon Quest in Japan, all the way to eleven. There, there's a th except for maybe 10, there's a through line between them. What makes Final Fantasy even Final Fantasy anymore? And who asked for this? This is the thing that, like... I think a lot of people asked no, for what this they, game. No, what they asked for was a remake of Final Fantasy VII. This right. is not a remake not. of Final no. Fantasy VII. And, and I, well, I, I think it's a good... I it think, is a remake of Final Fantasy maybe VII. Maybe it's a literal it's not remake. A, I think people wanted a remaster of Final Fantasy VII. And instead, we got a remake of Final Fantasy VII. Yeah, you're VII. right. That's, you're exactly right. It's, it's, people it's just a wanted literal... the old sprite art to be updated a little bit. Take away some of the contrivances that you had to have during the PlayStation era and just update it so it didn't feel quite as rickety and old. Yeah, because it definitely feels old. Now. But I don't think anybody wanted them to completely just scrap everything that Final Fantasy VII stood for well, for this. Well, don't you know Final Fantasy VII was an action RPG and it was yeah. released episodically. That's why everyone loved it. <laughs> I do think that the fact that it's episodic gives me some hope that it actually is going to be released at some point. Maybe one of them. I mean, how <laughs> how hard is it to get one episode done? I hard, mean, hard enough where they're still hiring for it, apparently. Yeah. It's yeah. really mind-boggling. And you brought up the... Should Square Enix have a bigger project in its... At least Japan... It, is there a bigger project it's working on right now? I would assume 16's in pre-production. Like, I, don't, I don't know... 
you brought it up earlier with uh, when we were talking about the, the Battle Royale games where, the, you know, um, you scale up, you hire, you scale, and then people have to introduce themselves to the, to the concept, to the, the hardware, and to the, the process. Yeah, yeah and, and like, I, I just, really I, I just, crazy, I, just yeah. I don't, I, I don't, I don't get what Square is doing, and I think that there's a, there's a leadership problem there, and I think the only reason that there wasn't a major shakeup in, in corporate uh, in Square Enix in Japan was because Final Fantasy XV sold well. I think it's because of Square Enix North America. Because you were saying earlier, like, you don't know what's going on at Square Enix, but I think Square Enix North America is doing great. Well, with, like, uh, with IDOS and Crystal and all those? Yeah. Yeah, yeah much better, sure. And they, they kind of ceased operations with IO and stuff like that. But, yeah, they're, you're right. They're doing much better stuff in North America than they are. I mean, they're pulling the card at this point. I yeah, mean, Final I would assume Fantasy so. Final Fantasy XV did pretty well. Yeah, it did well. It was the best-selling Final Fantasy game ever. So, I mean, the, the, I'm, I'm sure that they were happy about that. But I would be curious about how much money they sunk. Um, into verses and then kind of re- they they must have admit, I mean it was I mean a lot of what money. is I mean I think they did say that they needed to sell like seven or eight million copies to break even even across like versus and fifteen proper um, and it appears that it did that but you you can't look at a ten plus year development cycle as a success no matter how much money you make. I agree you can't and then multiple delays even when they were ready to go right. Um, I, w- I I was really surprised that game came out like I I was just like this game must be so fucked. You know that. Well, yeah, I mean, year after year yeah. after year of waiting for Versus to show us something new, and then they put out a, a big CG trailer. You're like, wow, okay, it's coming, and then it's not. It. I mean, the messaging from Square Enix Japan's terrible. You never know what's going on. I mean, they've actually been pretty forthright with what's been going on with this remake. Um, maybe too much. Yeah, they showed. Maybe it to th- the detriment of the project. They showed it too soon. Like, way, 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 way too soon. Even now would be too soon. But I think this harkens back to what you were saying earlier about how there's so many shows, so many press conferences, and you always need something. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes you're a partner. Sony comes to you. PlayStation comes to you. You're like, we've been bros for how many years now? How much money have we made you guys? Well, we need something. We need something to get people hooked on PlayStation 4 to buy it now and hold it until you release it. They're like, well, we've been kicking around this Final Fantasy VII remake, you know? Right. And oh. how many people bought PS3s for Final Fantasy 15 or Final Fantasy Versus 13? Yeah. Exactly. I think they made the same mistake. I would be surprised if these... I don't know. I think you're, I think people are going to be not happy when, when these come out. <laughs> but, but now you think they will come out? I think it's a coin flip if they do, but if they do, I, I, how can anyone think these games are in good shape? Is beyond, is like, is beyond me. Well, after playing Final Fantasy 15, I mean, it sold well, but how much time did you spend with it? Eight or ten hours. I, I, I really wasn't... I finished I, it. I wasn't that impressed with it. I was just like, it's, it's cool. Like, I, don't think, I don't think it was a bad game by any yeah. stretch of the imagination from what I saw, but it was just... It was not... The time didn't justify the, you know, like what what I was seeing, and also I just felt like it was a, uh, it 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 when we ha- we have open world game RPGs that are way better. Right, that's my point. Yeah, and I think that's what we see a lot from Japan. It's like you have they have huge fan bases, people that are obsessed over their games, and then when they release something, I mean, we talked about Breath of the Wild a little right. bit on your podcast in this way. Um, even if they can get close to what the standard is, a lot of fans are more than willing to forgive a little bit of the shortcomings just because, hey, this is my favorite franchise from my favorite Japanese developer, and it feels almost as good as this game that was made in the West. And that, for a lot of fans, I think that's good enough for them. Yeah, and I think that a lot of us just inherently, especially older gamers, like, we root for them. Like, yeah. I, I want Square to do well. I want Absolutely. Nintendo to do yeah. well. But I kind of try to look through things as an, with, with what I look at as, you know, everything's inherently subjective, but I try to, like, look at things and be honest with myself and then translate that to the audience and they don't always like what they hear but when I played Zelda I was like this is really cool this is great 
there are better games than this that yeah, do this. Yeah, and, yeah. and when I saw Final Fantasy XV, I was like, this is great. There are better games that do this. Like, and, and I think it is the attachment of Zelda, the attachment of Final Fantasy, the Japanese lineage of these games, how much we love those games and we want them to do well. That we kind of, you know, I think Zelda got a huge score bump because of that. I've said, I said that on my show and I, I, I stand by that. Yeah, I think Final Fantasy XV was reviewed pretty evenly. Um, it didn't set the world on fire on Metacritic. Um, and I think it ended up ultimately probably getting the scores that it deserved because uh, it didn't review like 9 plus or anything like that. Um, it was a good game. It wasn't a great game. And I think for some Final Fantasy fans, that's good enough because... Well, we haven't gotten 13. I mean, like I said, 13 was bad. And, and uh, so, yeah, a step in the right direction, perhaps. Yeah, and I think that's enough for some people to just to see that that auspicious horizon, I guess, maybe is a, is a good way to put it. They're like, okay, maybe this is a step towards something better. Sure. I mean, I would say that Final Fantasy XV does give me a little bit of hope that the Final Fantasy VII remake will at least be passable. Um, well, the, you'll find out the in 2022. Com- yeah, it, that might be true. <laughs> it might be a PlayStation 5 launch game at the, at the rate things are going right perhaps, now. Perhaps. And it would make for one hell of a launch game. Yeah, my, my theory is that Horizon 2 is going to be a launch game. And uh, um, I definitely think Death Stranding is a launch game for PS5. Like, I, I, I feel that. Well, that's definitely going to be, it's going to straddle the line. Yeah. I think they'll still release it for PS4, but it'll also be, just like The Last of Us 2, I think it'll be dual threat, so sure. to speak. We will see. Yep, we All will. conjecture right now. That's right. All right, let's move on. We're going to talk next about crossovers and not the cross-platform play that we talked about earlier. We're talking about gaming crossovers. Sure. Uh, this week it was announced that Geralt from The Witcher is going to be in Soul Calibur 6. Pretty cool. I think it's really cool, actually. Yeah. Um, the trailer for it makes it, it... It works. He fits right in with the aesthetic of Soul Calibur. Uh, Soul Calibur has been a franchise that has done this Probably more than any other, unless you're talking about like a franchise that's made for that, like Marvel versus Capcom. Uh, but as a standalone franchise to have other characters come into it, Soul Calibur has been one of the leaders, in my opinion. Yep. Um, I think Geralt fits in perfectly with Soul Calibur. Obviously, the sword is his weapon of choice. Uh, Soul Calibur is a weapons-based fighter, always has been, probably always will be. Uh, so I think it works well. But it brought up the topic of gaming crossovers, and they don't always work out as well as it has in Soul Calibur. In fact, one of we, we, we've both chosen crossovers, a crossover that we like and a crossover that we didn't like. And one crossover that you don't like actually comes from Soul Calibur, yep. right? Yes, yeah, Spawn, um, which was the P- So for people that don't know, on PlayStation, or on the, in the PlayStation 2 GameCube Xbox era, um, there were, uh, or was Spawn, yeah, Spawn was the PS2 and Xbox was high, high uh, Hey, who's the, who was on Xbox and Soul Cal 2? I can't even remember at this point. But anyway, each of the consoles had their own guy. And obviously GameCube was the favorite because Link was in it. Yeah. Um, so I looked at, uh, I remember back in, uh, I had all three consoles. And I was like, which one did I want to buy? And I was like, obviously the GameCube one. I always kind of deferred to GameCube, actually. Um, and I was kind of like, I felt like the other two, it was like Hihachi and, uh, and Spawn and the other two. I was like, this is so weak. This is because... It's only because Link was standing next to them and the other one and you couldn't play him as that. So I, I loved that crossover. And when I think of fighting crossovers, that's the game I always think about. I, I loved Soul Calibur 2. It was such a great game. It was. It was one of my favorite fighting games ever. It, yeah, yeah, me too. Like I, I, I put a lot of time... I loved the original Soul Calibur and Dreamcast as well, but... Um, and, Power and the arcade. Stone and, 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 yeah. Uh, but, Soul's Edge in the arcade. Sure. And I... Um, I'm not a huge 3D fighter fan, like so. It has like Power Stone and those other games did something special to kind of attract me because I was typically more into like you know especially Capcom fighters, the 2D fighters. But I liked that crossover with Link, and then when I looked at Spawn, 
I was like, this is a little, a little. So strange. what was it about Spawn that they didn't do it for you? It just didn't really fit. Like when I, when I, when I, when I, I just didn't understand. Here he is. I didn't understand how this character fit this aesthetic at all. Like Link to me, because we weren't getting like uh, cell shaded necessarily Wind Waker Link. So it worked. Like it, it just yeah. seemed like. No, he fit in fine. Yeah, yeah, I just felt like I remember playing this at a buddy's house who had it. Um, this version of it, and I was like, this just doesn't seem to work for me. Um, and so I always, and I, uh, I honestly I, don't know much about Spawn. I'm not a huge comic guy. Yeah, Does I don't, he I don't actually either. even use a big battle axe? I don't know. I thought, I thought, <laughs> I thought he. Uh, Maybe I'm somebody to, in chat knows. I'm trying to think back to the memories of the '90s movie. Doesn't he materialize his weapons out of like his suit or something like that? Does he? Does he morph the weapons out of his? Maybe I'm making that up. <laughs> I don't know. I thought so. I bet Somewhere you somebody probably. in chat will uh, will let us know. But yeah, no, I, I. I uh, I think, it, again, it was just a comparison thing because Link was available in the GameCube version, and the GameCube version was so superior, especially with the GameCube controller, which I love. Um, yeah, I was just talking about it last week, how much I love the GameCube controller. My favorite controller of all time. That's interesting. It's so ergonomic. <laughs> That's what I was talking about. That's exactly what I said last week. The GameCube controller is one of my favorites. The button layout isn't great, but it felt so good in your hands. Oh, it felt perfect. I mean, from maybe we have... The size of our hands is, is, is best. Set. But when people disparage the GameCube controller, I have a huge problem with that. Yeah. What, do, what, is, uh, what is the one that you uh, didn't like? Uh, let's see. This, this is going to really piss people off. Because to most people, I think this is like one of the most successful gaming crossovers of all time. But I absolutely despise it. And that is Kingdom Hearts. I don't like Kingdom Hearts either. So It's I, not I even that I don't like the game. It's just that it makes no sense whatsoever. No, not at all. And I feel like Square Enix and Square back in the day has done a pretty good job of trying to rationalize how all these characters are in the same place at the same time. But it just ends up... And maybe it's because I'm older and I grew up with Disney and Disney was its own thing. And you understood that universe and how if any characters linked together, how they linked together. And it all kind of made sense. This makes no sense to me whatsoever. It, it feel, this feels like the product of someone from Square and someone from Disney having a business dinner in Japan and then going out to like a hostess bar afterwards and getting hammered on sake and saying, Hey, what about this? Well, I'm going to just bring these Disney characters into your Final Fantasy stuff and we'll get rich. And they were right. But that doesn't mean it was a good idea. No, I, 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 I never understood Kingdom Hearts. Um, and it's funny, it's another example. Kingdom Hearts 3 is another example of a game that who the hell knows when that's coming out. It um, looks like maybe this year now. Yeah, I don't think so. But we'll, 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 we'll see. again, we'll see. I, I, whenever, whenever, whenever someone says a Square Enix game from Japan is coming out this year, I always say, no, it's not. Yeah. Uh, until, until I'm proven wrong. But it, I was always confused by it, too. It, it, it seemed incoherent to me from the very beginning. Um, so I was never attracted to it, but it has great critical acclaim. The thing that bothers me about Kingdom Hearts, though, is just these random titles, these random re-releases, 2.8 hyper remix, whatever. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know what the fuck's well, going on. Our normal co-host, Matt Kyle, he's a big Kingdom Hearts guy, and he knows what all that stuff means. Like, he knows ex every... Latin. <laughs> it's insane. Like, I can't keep track of it at all. Uh, but fans have managed to. Um, yeah, if you're happy and excited about it, I think it's cool. I mean, the one cool thing is that it seemed like this relationship between Square and Disney is the reason that they had that they were able to segue into the Marvel stuff. Uh, so no, they, you're right. I mean, it actually ended up ultimately paying dividends like decades on down the road because they were just basically like, we already did all this. We are capable of doing this. And, well, and yeah, I mean, look, Disney put a lot of trust in Square and now Square Enix to handle. I mean, look, Disney. There's no one more protective of IP than Disney, particularly 
Mickey Mouse and that whole universe of characters. Which is amazing, yeah. yeah. And it should be, because those characters are probably worth more than any other set of characters in the world. And once you entrust a company to create interactive entertainment based around those characters and you feel like they do okay, I think you've created a pretty good relationship there where you feel like you can trust them. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I think that trust ultimately bubbled over into a lot of the deals that Square has made with Disney long after the fact of Kingdom Hearts. And look, I don't begrudge anybody who, does, who loves Kingdom Hearts. I'm not saying you're wrong for liking it. I'm just saying for me personally, someone who grew up with Disney characters and also grew up with Final Fantasy, it makes no sense whatsoever for me for those characters to be in the same video game together. I agree. I am saying you're wrong for liking it, and I think you should go play Omega Labyrinth. <laughs> All right, um, now yeah. that we've talked about crossovers <laughs> that we don't like, talk about a crossover that you do like. So this is a funny one for me. Uh, I, when you emailed me about this, I thought about I knew immediately I was going to say Spawn, but the other one I was like, who, what's, a good, like what's a good one? And I, I ended up picking up Kratos and Shovel Knight. That is um, a good one. So the reason I say that is... Uh, Again, I, I like to be transparent about this stuff. I'm, I'm very close with the Yacht Club guys. I wrote the forward to their art book that just came out. Um, and so we had a nice correspondence. I was also the guy that revealed the game to the world. Um, they they oh, chose right. me to do that. Yeah. Um, because I'm such a huge NES nerd. Yeah. Um, and Mega Man nerd and Castlevania Ninja Gaiden, and all the games that this takes from. So I just want to be clear about that. Again, you can take what I say with a grain of salt. They emailed me when I was still at IGN. They're like, we're doing a PlayStation crossover. What is the character that you think should be in it? And I said, Nathan Drake. <laughs> which makes no fucking sense. Which makes no fucking sense. I think I thought about it for about three seconds. So later they're like, we're going to do Kratos. And I was like, oh, okay, that sounds interesting. And the Battletoads, obviously, are in the Xbox yeah. one. And um, he fits perfectly he does, yeah. in the Shovel Knight world. Like, the Battletoads was fun. Yeah. Like, it was a fun little ode. I liked that. But this, I was like, this works. Like, it's almost as if Kratos belongs here. And so I liked that crossover a lot. I thought it was a, a nice little ode to PlayStation fans to get that. And obviously a nice little cross-promotion, too, for the... Because we didn't know at this time when they were doing this, I don't think, about the new God of War game yet. So this, this was like a little... It's one of those things where... Um, it's like stealth, um, you know, like stealth announcing something or like yeah, kind yeah. of hinting at something a little bit, which is cool. Well, I thought the integration was pretty cool too. Like if, once you beat him, you get uh, you get a new weapon and new armor, I believe, mm -hmm. if I remember correctly. Um, I think the other thing that's cool about it is seeing Kratos in a completely different perspective. I mean, it's a 2D game. Yep. Would you have ever dreamed you would see Kratos in 2D? It's awesome. And pixel art? He looks great too. I mean... Yeah, they like, did a great job on him. I wonder if they... Did that? Or, I'm sure they did. Yeah, or if Sony Santa Monica created it. No, I think that they did it. You, to create, to create. I'm not saying that they're not capable of it, but really one of the lost art forms in uh, in gaming right now, which is a, the reason why a lot of games are going 2.5D, particularly in Japan, whether you're talking about Mega Man 11 or uh, um, Bloodstained, is because there just aren't enough talented pixel artists anymore to be able to do this stuff. It's super expensive. They definitely did that. I, I, I would be shocked if Waz didn't do that himself over at, uh, at Yacht Club. I'm sure there were lots of checks and balances along the way. Uh, definitely. Um, but they're in Marina Del Rey, so they're right in the same... Like, they're like 10 minutes away from Sony Santa Monica, yeah. so I'm sure there was a lot of nice crossover there. But yeah, like, I can't wait to see what they do next. I saw them last in December. I had them sign the art book that I wrote the forward for for my nephew, who's a huge fan of oh, the game. Oh, cool. And um, I just keep encouraging him. I'm like, let's just get this King Knight shit over with so we can move on <laughs> to the next game. You know? Um, so Would I, you be happy if it was another Shovel Knight? God, yeah. Yeah. Like, I know that they originally said that they wanted to do 16-bit, 64-bit, like, kind of, you know... Bring Shovel Knight up through the, don't, the generations. Don't fuck with a good thing. Shovel Knight is immaculate. It's immaculate. It's so, so, so good. And if they don't do this again, 
Like, I'm going to be a little disappointed. <laughs> you know, I don't Well, need... it sounds like you have a direct line to them, so yeah, you I... can guide them along the they way. I don't give a fuck what I say. But, the, <laughs> but I don't, even, like, the Mega Man, the Mega Man X jump is really cool with Capcom, but I don't even need that. I, I think that 8-bit aesthetic is just perfect. Like, just... They should annualize that, like, for a little while. Like, do it. People love those kinds of things. Remember, we got six Mega Man games that are better than 99% of the NES catalog in six years. Yeah. So it's not necessarily always a bad thing. Typically it is, but not always. Yep. So, yeah, that's my choice. How about you? All right. My pick for best crossover, and this is interesting because I don't really care for Kingdom Hearts. And I said I hated that crossover. I don't really care for this franchise either, but I love the, how the crossovers work in it. And that's Super Smash Brothers. Sure. Um, and, look, there's... Literally, like, a dozen fighting games that cross over characters from other franchises. Like, obviously, Marvel versus Capcom is the most popular. We talked about Soul Calibur bringing characters in. But the, what's special about the way Smash Brothers does it is that it's from everywhere. They bring in characters. They bring in Solid Snake. Yeah, which they, is really cool. They bring in Sonic. They bring in Pac-Man. They bring in Mega Man. You just, you never know what kind of characters that they're going to bring in. So I like the choices that they make for the characters that they bring in. Only Nintendo could get the industry's biggest icons in its fighting game. So I like how it gets the characters in. I like the characters it actually chooses for it. But most importantly, once they have the characters in, I love how they treat those characters. Each character is handled so well. It has its own stage. It has its own music. The way the characters fight, it, it stays true to, to what the studio that created that character originally envisioned that character to be. Um, the character of the characters is dead on. You can just tell that Nintendo does everything with, with uh, kids' gloves when it handles like these IPs and these characters. And I've never felt like a character from outside the game didn't make sense inside the game or disrespected that character from where its origins come right. from. I agree. And again, I'm not a fan of Smash Brothers. I played the first one a ton. I played the next one less. Played the next one less. Hardly even played the Wii U version of the game. Um, I'm not a big fan of it as far as it being just a video game. But just the way that it handles crossovers and the way it brings all these characters from all these different... Even just internally. If you think about just using Nintendo's characters and the crazy disparate universes that these characters come from, yet Nintendo can bring them all into one game and have it all make sense. I think it's brilliant. I think Nintendo does that better than any other uh, developer on the planet. So, um, again, not a huge fan of Smash Brothers, but I love the way that they handle the IP and the characters from the outside and from the inside. Completely agree. Yeah. Solid Snake especially was really cool. Yeah. Really weird. Well, it had the box. I mean, they get it, right? Mm. They, they figure out what it makes each character special. And they focus on it. Like, they had the sneaking box for Solid Snake. Like, how does that work in a fighting game? Nintendo figured out how to do it. With Mega Man, it's all about his blaster, which is what the focus of Mega Man. So uh, Nintendo's just really smart about it. And I think a lot of that comes, too, with a lot of people who work at Nintendo of Japan growing up with games just like we did. They're 50, 60-year-old people at this point. They know what made each one of those characters so special throughout the years, and I think that they apply that to their craft when they get them into Smash Brothers. So Absolutely. Agreed they 100%. They do a great job. So, it's time for our trailer of the week. And you don't know this, but some of the Sifted viewers may know it. Some of the people who came for you may not know it, but this is actually everyone's opportunity to get questions into the chat. Um, go at Sifted Games, because it's hard to pluck out the questions from people who are just making comments. So if you go at Sifted Games and then ask a question, it's easier for us to find them in the chat. Our trailer of the week this week is for Sea of Thieves. I know you're not going to play it because you know you sold your Xbox. Yeah, gave it away. Gave it to my uh, my brother-in-law. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm going to play it. I have a code sitting in my inbox right now. I cannot wait to play it this weekend. Um, we didn't get to talk about it on the show today. This is not actually a game where I did not get code early. Uh, it's different. When you're one of the smaller guys, it's like some publishers you get with everybody else. Sometimes you get them a little later. This was one of those cases. I did play the crap out of the beta, so I have a pretty good idea of what it's all about. I've heard universally good things about it. So. I, I enjoyed the beta a good bit. It wore a little thin, but I think that might just be a factor of it being a beta and just being limited in its scope. Because uh, I did play it for like 20, 30 hours, and all the all the missions were the same, and I still played it for that long. So I think that's a pretty good sign. But because we couldn't talk about it on today's show, we will next week. But since we couldn't talk about it today, we decided to make it our trailer of the week. And here it is, the launch trailer for Sea of Thieves. Has released the Kraken. <laughs> Release the Kraken. I was just telling Colin he didn't play the beta, but during the beta, you could hear the Kraken roaring the whole time you played it. You just hear this, like the whole time. And uh, with this trailer, they finally actually showed the Kraken and what it does. It looks like it's going to definitely add an element to the game where maybe you have to work together as a fleet of ships attacking maybe the Kraken. Because uh, a lot of Sea of Thieves in the beta was just like, Hey, there's that boat. Let's go destroy it and then take all their shit. Like, that's pretty much what the beta was. And so it'll be interesting maybe to have some elements where you actually work together with sure. other people on the sea. So that's the hope anyway. All right, let's get to some questions. Okay. Uh, we're going to shade these towards Colin. Uh, so if you guys are asking Colin questions, I'm going to try to get them in uh, because I'm here every week and Colin's not. So here's one for you, Colin, from okay. Wolfox10JC. PlayStation 5 prediction date. I think it's. I think November 2019 is uh, either. So I've been telling people this. I think no earlier than November 2019, and no later than December 20 or November 2020. Um, so I think in that window. But I, I think based on the fact that I know people have been working on games for this thing for a while, I just cannot imagine that it won't be next year. But I. But it makes too much sense. But I. I don't. I don't know. You know. I just don't know for sure. It just seems weird to me that. Um, they would need so much lead time, you know? Um, so I, I, I think that might be what they're aiming for, but, but PS4 is doing so well that Sony might not even really know yet. They might want to hold it for a year. You but know? Sony's pretty good about keeping its old console around and relevant, even though there's a new one. Mm -hmm. And like we, we talked about earlier with uh, backwards compatibility, really is just scaling at this point. Um, it's not like you're abandoning PlayStation 4 when you launch PlayStation 5. I mean, with these mid-cycle upgrades we saw with Xbox One X and S to an extent, and PlayStation 4 Pro, I think it's just going to kind of keep going in those steps. And I think 
any game you buy on PS4 is going to work on PlayStation 5 and probably PlayStation 6 and probably PlayStation 7, and by then we have, like, a holodeck or some crap. So Right, right. I think that you're right. Like, God of War 2, for instance, came out on PS2 in 2007, so that was a year after. Yeah. Um, actually, it was in the spring, so it was, like, six months after PS3 came out. But I did, I will say that with the transfer to PS3 to PS4, there was a lot less of that. There was some of the third-party stuff, specifically from Bandai Namco and a few other Japanese publishers that were releasing games, like even Tales games and stuff, pretty late. So there might be a little fear there because I don't know that Sony Sony's first party uh, leverage is not as much as it used to be. That they, they, they've um, and like I said, I'm not sure that a couple of these studios are going to survive the PS4 era. So um, so they might be a little wary of that. But so I, I think 2019 is I don't want to say a safe bet, but a, a bet that's that's reasonable. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's find another one. Uh, from Goose Seven, Colin, what games will you play with Dagan on this retro-inspired Let's Play series? That I'll keep a little close to my vest. We already have a few picked out. My brother's a retro game collector, so um, and I have a ton of old NES, SNES stuff. So we're gonna try to pick out from different platforms, both games that we're familiar with that I think will be fun, and then games that we never played or like we weren't really Sega kids, um, so at all. Um, Specifically with the Master System, our neighbor has one. It's interesting you working with your brother on something like this. I'm excited about it. I mean, I have to be honest. I've been telling people, I'm like, it's a little selfish of me to do knockback because it really is the excuse I've long been looking for to do something with Dagan, who's my brother. Um, And he's such a fucking nerd, you know? Like, and and so it's 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 good. Who's the bigger nerd? If you guys had a nerd off, who would win? He's definitely the bigger nerd. Yeah, but but that's a badge of honor in our family. Oh yeah, of course. We're all huge nerds. Yeah. so it, it like I'm excited to do something with him, and I think he's so natural. The feedback we've gotten from you know Knockback um, is doing like half the traffic that Fireside Chats does. Yeah, but it'll it's pick getting, up though. It will. It's getting bigger. But I've noticed that like the kind words that people have to say about it are are you know many times what we get about Fireside Chats because people are just listening to Fireside Chats or whatever, but they're not engaging with it as much. So yeah. I'm super stoked about it, and I'm stoked about the one thing is my brother, even though he has a big role at Sesame Workshop, um, has been pretty private um, in his life. And has only recently got on social media, and like my oh, whole geez. thing is like my whole thing is like I just want to protect him. From, yeah, yeah. <laughs> from all that's bad, you know, they come for me every once in a while. I don't want them to come. Them to come. So that's that's a little weird working with my brother because there's a little bit of like. Well, if, if he hasn't been kind of out there as well, there may be a little bit of a shell that you need to crack to kind of get him to come out a little bit and yeah, yeah. be he's, himself, right? He's the funny thing about it is he's been. If people listen to the show, I hope you guys do. CLS knockback is is uh, he's so natural. Like it's awesome, you know. I've been yeah. doing I've been doing this for a long time. Like I can sit down in a chair. We can do this for fucking five hours. It's yeah. easy. Um, but a lot for a lot of people, even in the audience, anyone, like, you wouldn't be able to do it because you're not used to it. You'd freeze or you'd be nervous. Or you'd think about it too much. Well, we just started I, doing a call-in show called Today's High Score on Sifted, where literally we just use Skype and our users call in, and it's like a it's like sports talk for games. In awesome. fact, it'll be in fact it'll be streaming right here tomorrow at one p.m. Pacific for uh, those of you who came to see Colin. If you guys want to check it out. Um, but I was actually, I've been pleasantly surprised by how well your, our users have done. That's awesome. People are shy. Like, there's a lot of people who are watching but won't call in. Um, but I think once people kind of get over the hump and do it, uh, they find out that it's just like talking with your bros about games. Yeah, it's really easy uh, when you just, what I always say is just don't think about it. You know, like, like people yeah. think about it too much. I, I often say I just play myself on camera. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, so I'm super excited because I think – but it's it's probably the same reason why a lot of your audience is good at it naturally too is because everyone's just listening to this shit all day. Yeah. It's, they're listening to podcasts. They're even listening to talk radio or sports radio. So they, they just yeah. – they become acclimated and they're able to do it. I think, I think so they cool. figure out what they're supposed to do. Yeah, exactly. And then they just got to go out and do it. Exactly. All right, let's find another one. Um – 
Golden Boy 5, even though you got rid of your Xbox, what were your impressions of Cuphead? I haven't played it yet. You haven't um, played Cuphead? I think we talked which, about this. Which is amazing. I was, I'll get it on Steam at some point. I mean, there's just... Actually, this first quarter probably would have been a good time to play. It would have, yeah. Um, but uh, You're no, going to need some time, too. It, it, I, I mean, I, lo- I, lo- I live for hard... 2D platformers, I love them. That's like my. If someone was like, "What is the platform? Like, what is the uh, genre that you would want to play for the rest of your life? You only play one." What's your desert island genre? Yeah, definitely. Like, Mega Man Three is my favorite game of all time. So, like, anything that feels or looks or tastes or smells like that is good. Is good to me. So, um, it looks awesome. My brother loves it. Uh, I I think that uh, I have to get to it at some point. That was the one thing where I got rid of the Xbox and I was like, fuck. Fuck me. <laughs> you know, like, because there was just game, like, Gears. Any interest in getting the Xbox One X at all? No. Not and, even and, to play third party stuff on the best platform possible? Nope. It's like, I, I like the, uh, I like just having an ecosystem. Like I said a million times now, like, I, I, I don't want to be redundant to your audience. I love trophies. I, I just, I'm a PlayStation guy. I've always been unabashed about that. Well, at least you're and, honest. Yeah, no, I, I, I always hate, listen. Because a lot of people will be that way, and they'll try to play it off they're like, bullshit. oh, no, I like everything the same. I know lots of people that write and podcast about games or whatever that act more agnostic than they are, no matter which way they go. I don't think there's... I've often said, like, it doesn't... Just because I, I prefer PlayStation doesn't mean I can't look at something objectively on, a, on another platform. And also, doesn't... Like, I don't... The most unfulfilling generation I ever had was PS2, Xbox, and GameCube, because that was the first time I had money. Yeah. And, and I could afford everything. And uh, I felt like, I was like, I look back at some of the catalog of these things and I'm like, I don't even know what half these games on PS2 are because I was so up GameCube's ass for a little while and then I was up Xbox's ass and I, I just like being up PlayStation's ass. <laughs> um, I can only be up so many asses at one time. I hear you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, here's one from Mega2448. Colin, will PlayStation's success with the PS4 bolster the success of the PS5? Or will it be a clean slate? I think it depends on how it's revealed. I think that Xbox One would have done much better if um, they didn't fuck it up so bad when they revealed it. Um, but it's easy to swap. I mean, we saw Xbox 360 pretty much dominate. PlayStation 3 came on a little at the end because Sony supported PlayStation 3 a little bit longer. But just like that, Switch was flipped. PlayStation 4 dominates over Xbox One. Yeah, but that's to me, that's a very simple telling of what happened, though, right? Like, it... PS3 outsold Xbox 360 ultimately with a year less time on the market because it, starting in 2009 with the Slim, it did start to come on. Yeah. Um, and the games were better on PS3. Like, I, I firmly believe that. Um, not first, part, first party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying games were running better on PS3. Yeah. That's definitely not true. But first party, the first party... Output. I mean, it's superior. The first party pl- output is even more superior now. Oh, for sure. But, oh, but, it's, not even, it's not even in the same, like, stratosphere. But uh, to me, I think that... Like I said, I don't think it was Xbox One it's, or Xbox One itself that was the problem. It was Don Matrick, it was that bravado, it was Call of Duty Sports TV Connect. Call of Duty Sports TV Connect. Right. They had no idea what the fuck people liked about Xbox 360, so they were not able to translate that, so they immediately dropped the ball, and they went second. So that was a huge problem, because PS4 was so artfully revealed in Manhattan a few months before that, then the price point was wrong, yeah. the games weren't there, the, the message still was aren't the there. big problem, though. So it's not that... Most people thought they weren't going to be able to, like trade their games in. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. It wasn't just a switch from my perspective. It was like this this, this deluge of nonsense. Microsoft just, Microsoft should, the should have won. They crashed There's the no bed. reason yeah. why it should have went yeah. like the, the way it went. So yeah. I think Sony hopefully But have you noticed it. though, a lot of the principles that Microsoft unveiled initially for Xbox One are kind of starting to come to pass now and people are kind of okay with it. 
Yeah, it's certainly. Well, more in the digital platform stuff yeah. is certainly something that they identified early, and they did that with Xbox Live. I mean, they, they were yeah. the pioneers of that. Yeah. Um, putting an Ethernet port on your console released in 2001 is a really bold thing to yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I just think that Sony needs to remain smart and remain focused on games. All the other stuff is secondary and tertiary. It does not matter. Everything plays Netflix now. Everything can play NFL Sunday Ticket. Everything plays Spotify. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It's about the games. Yeah. Um, the That's one, what Microsoft lost sight of. Yeah. The one problem I think that they're going to run into, I think both platform holders are going to run into, is that, and I think I might have talked about this on one of my videos, I don't know, is, is uh, the consoles for the first time are so good. And I don't mean that by the games. I don't mean by the way the games look. They're just... My, my girlfriend, who doesn't really play games that much, picks up the controller, can navigate perfectly, get into whatever she wants. Very intuitive. Some people are just going to look at this and be like, I don't really need a new one not because i don't want to play these new games but 90 percent of this is me doing x y and z and it does it perfectly yeah it's not like the ps the ps3 to I mean, PS4. there's a lot of people that still have like a wii because yeah. they can use like netflix on it i know or an 480i or whatever the hell or you go to someone's it. cabin and like they have an old dusty wii set in the corner okay to play netflix like i'll never throw that thing away like it's it's you're right it to me it's just one of those situations where they might have done too well. That's the one reason why I think that they might hold until 2020 because PS4 is still churning. It's still selling. It's, well, it's going to reach 100 million units, which is amazing. I yeah. mean, we're also at the law of diminishing returns with hardware where you have to spend double the money to get a third increase in performance. And I think for a lot of casual players, it's really hard. I think it was really hard for a lot of casual players to see the difference between the 360 and the PS3 and the PS4 and the Xbox One, particularly with the Xbox One. Um, and now it's getting even slimmer because now what's the difference? It's 1080p to 4K and your TV needs to be 60 inches or bigger. You can't even see the difference. And I think, and the adoption of 4K TVs has been slow. Everyone has a great 1080p TV at yeah, this I have, point. I that, a that hat, like I said, that has Netflix and Amazon Prime and everything on yep. it. And they're like, do I need a 4K TV? Granted, when that 1080p TV dies, which I have a plasma that's now like 12 years old, Still looks great, working fine. But granted, when those TVs die, of course they're going to go to 4K because you can't buy a 1080p TV now. Right. But these TVs are going to be around for a while, and I think maybe these consoles jump the gun a little bit on 4K, especially PS4 Pro, where it can't even do it natively yet. No, so, and, and you have to also select how you really want to, not only with 4K, but just how you want to use its extra power. Like, yeah. you can't run at a frame rate that it's you want, much. and also yeah. resolution. I... You're right in that sense, but I think this kind of illustrates the point. The, the, because it's not about the look necessarily, but about the feel. You could feel the difference between PS3 and PS4. PS3, oh, if, if anyone's ever gone back recently and used the PS3, it fucking sucks. Yeah, yeah, it's really You know, funky. like, it's like, <laughs> the cross-media bar is awful. Yeah. The PS4 is so fluid and beautiful and it nice. Is, yeah. That's the thing that I think might hold people back, because like you're saying, casual gamers aren't graphic whores. They didn't even really want to make the jump in initial, initially, but they did. Yeah. And they have something that feels right. And so I think that that's going to be a problem. It's going to be a... Um, it's a similar thing that they're dealing with with PlayStation VR, where I fear for them where PS5 is something you're going to have to play to understand the, like, the difference. Otherwise, you're not going to see it. Yeah. Um, because I'm not... I, I shit you not. Like, you could put something on 1080p or 720p, and I don't even know if I can tell you the difference. It's hard. Depends like, on I, how big the TV is. I'm just not one of those people. Like, I, I, even frame rates, like, where people at IGN that were, like, savant about it would, like, walk by and be like, oh, this game's running at, like, 29 frames a second. I'm like, I have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, yeah. it, it's either running bad, it's running fine, yeah, it's yeah. running good. I can't <laughs> tell the difference. That's just not the kind of gamer I am. And if I existed in the industry like that, there are many of me. Oh, yeah. So I think sure. they're going to be dealing with, with that. Um, but we'll see, you know, we'll see how it all goes. All right, we'll take a couple more, guys. Okay. I know there are, there's a mega ton of questions in here. Um, let's see. 
Uh, Captain Hogwash. Will Colin ever do anything on Twitch again? Probably not. I love I, that I, screen name, by the way, Captain Hogwash. It is. It's great. <laughs> uh, so um, at my old company, Kind of Funny, I was the one that wanted us to go hard into Twitch, actually. And I was the one that came up with the, which they still do, the morning show um, and all that stuff. That was my idea. We originally called it Colin and Greg Live for two years. And we enjoyed that. I was like, it's a way for us to interface. I'm a huge sports fan like you, and I'm a huge uh, political guy. So I often absorb Morning Joe and, and uh, Mike and the Mad Dog or whatever what I was listening to at the time. Yeah. Um, uh, PTI and stuff like that. And I wanted to kind of give that to games. And what I was shocked by was that no one copied that idea still. It's a great idea. But it's not an idea that I'm capable of really doing or want to do. I don't like the live stuff, personally. I know we're doing this live, but when I'm, you know, you know <laughs> thanks, for, Colin. For my for my workflow, I'm glad like, you showed up at least. <laughs> for my workflow, I can't do it. We yeah. talked about this actually on my show. Yeah. Um, when you when you did my show some months ago, is that for me, uh, I like to produce something and then put it out into the world and see what happens, as opposed to doing it in real time. Um, and I think Twitch is like it's weird to say this because I'm a YouTuber, I guess, and a podcaster, but Twitch is so competitive that it seems like. Um, it seems like a weird thing for me to jump into when my, my, my space of comfort is more in line with what I typically do, which is podcasts and, and kind of VOD stuff. So It all depends I, I on the so. type of content that you want to create. Exactly. And I don't, I love, you know. Like I'm, I don't really, I don't hardly ever just stream games on our, our Twitch channel. Like very rarely. Like we'll do marathons sometimes. We'll do like a 25, like I try to do a 24 hour Patreon drive stream. Which literally almost killed me. Yeah, that's tough. We did a few of That's fun when you're maybe 21 to 24 years old. You get to my age, man. You get to around hour 21, your body's like, bro, I'm going to kill you. I'm literally going to kill you. Like, I literally felt the last few hours I might die yeah, I on did, the stream. I did several of those 24-hour streams are kind of funny, and they're, and they're awful. Like, it's, it it's, really... It's, it's, I'm glad the users like it. Yeah. I sure didn't. It did help our Patreon. I'll say that much. Like, the people watching you struggle, they were like, oh, I'll give you a dollar. Like... It was kind of fun to watch our Patreon go up and up and up. And then once we didn't hit our goal, it was very demoralizing. Because you're like, oh, God, we were so close. And then we didn't get to it. And then, ah. But uh, I rarely just play games. There's no reason for me to just go and play games on Twitch. There's not. So I try to use the medium in a way that I can leverage it toward the type of content that I want to create. So this. Being able to do this Q&A at the end of the show. Yeah, we can only do this. Yeah, and I, I feel like some of these questions have been better than the conversation that we've had on the show. And so I think I'm that was. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's my fault. I created the rundown. <laughs> and uh, like the show that we're doing tomorrow at one, like the call in show where people call in on Skype and we just hang out and talk games together. Um, you can't do that without Twitch and without the live element of it. So I try to look at every technology that we have available to us and try to find a way to make the best possible use out of it. And, and I think a big part too when you're like working on Patreon or you're working with a smaller community is you need to bring the community in to make them a part of what you're doing. And so everything I do, I try to think of a way to make the community, our patrons, our supporters, a part of it. Um, because I feel like that is what creates a great community in the first place, uh, which was really my one goal when I started Sifted, is I want to make sure I create a community online that I want to be a part of. Because I never really, everywhere you go, it's, there's, everything is so toxic and people are so angry. I'm like, well, I'm going to make an oasis, damn it. And I'm like, even if I have to be a douchebag on my site and kick people off who are trolls, I don't care. They can go off on Twitter and say Shane's an asshole because he kicked me off his... I don't care. As long as this community that I wanted to create ends up being what I wanted it to be. And I think when you do stuff like this, a Q&A at the end of your show, or you do like today's high score like we'll be doing tomorrow, I think that helps everyone feel like they're a part of it. 
Um, and I think that makes a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. It's great. I'm glad you're leveraging the platform. Good for Twitch to uh, <coughs> and Amazon for, for really absolutely. pioneering something awesome. Oh, thank you, FreedX100, for subscribing with Twitch, Twitch Prime. I should bring that up, actually. Uh, since you don't stream, some of your fans may be on our stream. And if you can't subscribe to his Twitch Prime, then it'd be great if you subscribed to ours. Yeah, it's free, basically, right? You yeah. Do, yeah. Yeah, you can just give us $2.50. We actually made a ton of money off that last month. Like, I make more money off Twitch Prime than I do off YouTube. Yeah, YouTube is killing me. You can't make any money off YouTube. Yeah, it's killing But here, it's like, as long as you're a, uh, an Amazon Prime subscriber, you just link your two accounts, your Twitch account and your Amazon Prime, and you click that little button at the top right of the player, and you give us $2.50. Just like that. It's awesome. Yeah, I love I loved that they... Uh, they uh, I keep they thinking it's going to end. Because it's like, it's, it is, it what might. is Amazon getting out of that? They're just giving us $2.50? It's, it's to create this, like... Ecosystem. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. We'll enjoy it while it lasts. So thanks to anybody who uh, subscribed to us. We appreciate it. Um, let's see. We'll take one more, and then we'll let you go. Uh, actually, well, I don't know. You didn't want to talk about this. I'll ask it anyway. From Gunzilla, what do you think of the new Splinter Cell rumors? So inside story, that was going to be a topic on today's show, but then he said that he didn't play a lot of Splinter Cell in the past, and so we cut it, but... I think you can still answer the question. Yeah, no, I think it's cool. Like, I, Splinter Cell's always been, special, specifically with Xbox, um, this important brand. It was kind of an Xbox aligned. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the games, as far as I remember, the games came out first on Xbox, then would migrate to PlayStation later, and some yep. of them are, never came to PlayStation. Um, and I've kind of, I understand that. Which explains why you haven't played a lot of them, because you're yeah. a PlayStation although, gamer. Although Rainbow Six Three, like I said earlier, was, yeah, my, yeah. was my shit on Xbox. Um, I understand that it's a little convoluted for Xbox because of the connection to Ubisoft and the tether to Tom Clancy's kind of IP with them. Um, but outside of that kind of hardware-centric viewpoint, this is a series that always, there always seems to be a hunger for. And I'm surprised that we haven't gotten more of it, specifically because of the focus with Tom, other Tom Clancy games at Ubi that were really They're great. They're all of them. Also, most, most of them have multi-platform as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The Division was awesome, um, and I played that by myself. And, uh, Did you really? Yeah, the whole thing. <laughs> And uh, it was awesome. That's insane. I, it, I, I, what I loved about it the you most. You played was, Destiny uh, for like ten hours. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I, I wasn't feeling Destiny. Um, but I loved the division. I thought that playing the division alone really added to the ambience of the well, game. You're also from New York. So. Yeah. Yeah. And the Christmas, uh, like the perpetual Christmas thing, was really cool. And it was eerie playing by yourself. It was awesome. Especially yeah. going to the dark zone by yourself. Very scary. That's insane. Yeah. Didn't make it out of there very, ma- very <laughs> much. You did it. Um, <laughs> if you did make it out, you didn't make it out with any loot, that's for sure. No, no, no. But that and Sie- between that and Siege and a few of these other games, I'm like, well, there's an appetite for something like this. Yeah. And I, so I think, obviously, it's going to come. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it for Game Face Episode 121. Colin, thank you, brother. Thank you. Great I time. I always have fun talking games yeah, with you. Yeah, it was you. great. We'll have uh, you back on Fireside Chats soon, too. Yeah, and hopefully you'll be uh, more than willing to come back even after your awful commute to get here. No, whatever you need me, just let me know. I'm yeah. happy to do it. Uh, it's good we... to put on pants. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before we go, let's bring up Colin's Patreon one more time. Yeah, bring up Colin's Patreon. There you go. Patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand if you want to contribute to his Patreon, and you should. He does good stuff. Cool, thank you. Yep, and we're at patreon.com slash sifted if you'd like to kick us a couple dollars. Buy us a beer for the month. Give us four bucks, and I'll buy a beer, and I'll drink it to you. Um, yeah, so next week, Matt should be back, our normal co-host. At least I hope so. Uh, he underwent a procedure. He seems to be recovering very well, so he should be back next week. Um, and we'll see you next Friday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Game faces up and out. Yeah.